For those of you who don't know, Roy Moller is a Scottish-Canadian singer, songwriter, musician, poet and subtitler for TV. He started gigging and recording music in his 30s, to which he received radio airplay on prestigious stations such as BBC Six Music. He was then invited along by radio DJ Mark Riley for an interview and to perform a live session as a solo artist and again with a band. Widespread acclaim followed as Mark Riley was quoted as saying Roy Moller was Scotland's best kept secret. He has released several albums. He also received airplay from legendary BBC Radio 1 DJ John Peel supported Mick Taylor of the Rolling Stones and earned a rave enemy review. Roy's songwriting talent saw him write several songs with Bell and Sebastian's Stevie Jackson. The songs were featured in the Nick Hornby movie High Fidelity, which starred John Cusack, Jack Black and Tim Robbins. In 2014, he paid a musical homage to Lou Reed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He has dyspraxia and most recently was diagnosed with ADHD along with borderline autism. Before we proceed with the latest episode, let's give a special mention to my fellow dyspraxic podcasters. Look out for Dyspraxia and Live Podcast, Neurocast by Autistically Aaron, Challenging Behaviours Podcast and the newest addition to the scene, The Theatric Dyspraxic Show, which is on YouTube now. You will find the Theatric Dyspraxic on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I was fortunate enough to have been the first guest on the Theatric Dyspraxic Show podcast. In this, I discuss my life and mental health with dyspraxia. Now, here's your host, Billy Stanley. Hello, Roy. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. So uh, thanks for having me on, Billy. No, it's my pleasure. Um, I've seen you on the open mic nights with, uh, on the Dyspraxic Circle Zooms, uh, which are very enjoyable. And um, I've heard good things about you since you did a demo um, single with Pete Guest, the founder of Dyspraxic Circle. And mm-hmm. I've been keen to speak to you ever since. Well, I'm very uh, happy to, to talk Billy, I've enjoyed, I've listened to the the three episodes of uh, the podcast that are up as we record this. Um, So I think it's great that you're doing this. It's it's really important that dyspraxic voices are heard, talking at length and talking about things that aren't always just directly to do with dyspraxia. Definitely, definitely. I I 100% agree with that. Thank you, Roy. Um, So you came into the world under difficult circumstances Having been born in Scotland, but conceived in Toronto uh, to Canadian parents, your birth mother flew to Edinburgh for the birth and headed back to Canada alone just weeks after labour. This resulted in you being adopted by a Scottish couple. How how did that um, feel uh, as you grew older? Would you you say that uh, played a factor in your dyspraxia, or you're not sure? Um, Certainly... It worked with my dyspraxia and making me feel insecure. Um, you know, just knowing that I wasn't the same as other kids. Um, it was a package, really. And it's hard to separate the strands of that feeling of just not fitting in. I didn't know the actual story behind my adoption until about five years ago. Um, 
though I did get a few details from my mum, my adopted mum. When I was about 17, I asked her if she had any information on my birth parents. And um, she had my mother's, my birth mother's name and her job. She was a reporter on a newspaper and some details about my, uh, my birth father, but not his name. And I, as I say, I didn't know the circumstances um, that had led to me um, being conceived and then being born. So I guess I, I didn't know what was wrong with me either. I didn't know anything about dyspraxia. I'd never heard the word. I didn't hear the word till much, much later in life. So I kind of felt a bit of an alien um, from the get-go. And dyspraxia was certainly... I could have probably handled the dyspraxia better had I not felt so alien through adoption. And, and even just having the name Muller, my adopted dad, his dad was Danish. So that was an unusual name back then in the 60s in, in Edinburgh. And it sounded like a German name. And guys used to bully me because they thought it was German. And, it, and just, you know, it wasn't that long since World War II had ended and, and things like that. It was just a whole package. Of this marking me out is different, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, I can understand. Um, I've, I've done a family ancestry search recently, and my my uh, ancestors on my mum's side are actually Danish. So what? I can I can emphasise there. I might have had a Danish surname myself, but um, but no, it it's a weird spelling the surname. Obviously, the O with the um the, like the the line for the O, but it's uh, quite a quite a, a good one for a musician because it stands out. It does. It looks quite. Good the stroke through the the O, um, I think. Yeah, it looks a little. There was a band called Fashion in the eighties. They they spelled the Fashion with this. They had the O of Fashion with the stroke through it as well. It looked quite cool. I love. They were kind of new romantic band. They were a bit naff, but uh, the stroke. It was nice to see the stroke through the O. My actual my father's my birth father's surname is Kennedy. So, um, you know, wow. if I'd had would have fitted in. I, I I think they originally came from. In Northwest Ireland, but the furthest I've been able to trace back through DNA and ancestry records is uh, Rochester in, uh, and uh, Clifford Who, so probably quite near your part of the world back in the 1800s, you know? Oh, wow, yeah, um, that, that's fascinating. Um, obviously, my, my uh, recent ancestry comes from the Kent area, so that, that's, um, yeah, that's quite staggering. Could, uh, could have been neighbours back in the day, boy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah. how much did that impact on you personally growing up, having learned the harsh realization of child of your early childhood? Then, well, I didn't know the full story, so um, the harshness wasn't so. The thing to the thing was that although it was harsh, I kind of felt special at the same time because when my my mum, when I say mum, normally that's me talking about my adopted mum. And when I say mother, that's me talking about my birth, birth mother. And same with dad and father, just in case um, that's not clear as we go on. But when my mum was tucking me in at night and things like that, she would say, you know, you're special. Other parents just have to take what they're given. We chose you. You know, we walked into a room and there was all these cots lined up and we had to choose a boy and you were smiling and laughing so we chose you and of course now that I have discovered the circumstances of my adoption um, it wasn't like that there was not a there weren't babies on offer to to be selected by 
a couple who wanted to adopt. It was very much, they, they had submitted a letter to the adoption agency a year before I was even conceived. And then eventually a baby became available. So it was, it was a fairy tale in a way, but it made me feel quite kind of special. So it, was, it wasn't all bad. Um, but so in the harshness of the situation um, and the adventure that my birth mother went on, I didn't really know about until, as I say, about five years ago. So I was able to deal with that as an adult, which was, I don't know how I'd have dealt with that as a, as a child, I, I really don't. Definitely. I, I don't really want to get too personal into your, like, your, your adopted parents' backstory because that's their story. But Absolutely. were they able to con- conceive naturally or, or was op- adoption, uh, did they adopt additionally to having children of their own or were, were they having trouble having like, children of their own? Naturally? I believe that's the case. Um, so, you know, I was, I was an only child in the family, not just the only adopted child, but the only, the only child. Um, so again, I had nobody really to compare myself with or, or to hang out with really you know it was I got on well with my adopted parents but uh, I was the only person of my age that I really knew um, I was quite solitary because of that and because of the adoption the surname the dyspraxia I felt like a whole raft of things really that, that added up to this feeling of being odd and different right and I, I take it it made the process slightly easier for you then that you didn't have like to compete or you didn't have that like sense of feeling left out that they had, they have had like their own children as well, naturally conceived. Yeah. Um, you didn't have that sort of guilt, like feeling of like envy that you're not naturally their child, like by birth. Um, I guess, did that help or did, did it not make a difference? It's hard to say because I got that in school. I, it's hard to say because I, I got that at school and, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a level playing field for me and the other kids, you know. I wasn't doing the things that they were doing. Right. Um, if that had also happened at home, I think it would have made things a lot worse. I was, I was definitely one of a kind, you know. Um, and that wasn't all bad, um, but it made it difficult to feel that I was really like the people that were in my class at school. That I, I, and I've always still feel that way. I'm not really like other people it's too ingrained now to really change i think sure and how was your family life then growing up well in the early years of you know primary and early secondary school it was very good i was quiet very reserved shy polite boy Uh, i must have disappointed them that i wasn't doing things that i should have been doing and there was they were getting my handwriting was abysmal and I was dreaded going in and to school back to school on Monday because Monday was the day that we had to do gym and, and things like that. So I'd, I presented a lot of difficulties. Um, generally it was it was it, it was good they kept me stable. They really did keep me stable. Um, when I became a teenager I started becoming awkward and kind of angry and started sort of having arguments with my dad and after one argument um, I ran out of the 
the room and ran in, unintentionally through a, a glass door that was closed in the kitchen and I ended up blood everywhere and ended up needing 38 stitches. Um, so we, we our, our relationship unfortunately deteriorated and he died when I was 19. Last time I ever saw him, we were having an argument and that's something that I still have to sort of live with. Um, it's still, I don't think I'll ever get over that one actually. So, but generally, the I, even after that, um, I continue to have a good relationship with my adopted mum, you know, um, for almost 30 years after he, he died. So um, more good memories than bad memories, but it, it is mixed, mainly because of my behaviour when I was an adolescent was, was not the way that I would ever wish to to behave again. I would say, having read a bit of your backstory, Roy, that you later found out you had ADHD, so that might have played a part in your behaviour um, growing up. And like you know, you're young, you're a young male, um, you'd have had a lot of like teenage angst and anger in a way, like most of us at a teenage male would have. Um, and obviously, you're not to know what's going to happen the next day after a row, are you? So it, it, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm not a family guidance counsellor, but you know, you can't help these things. It's part and parcel of life, isn't it? We, we, as a family, you, you, you have laughs, you, you know, you, you have rows and you make up that sadly, you can't always do those three things, but I find that, you know, it's nice if you can, but if you can't, it's not the end of the world. It's just nice. I, I, and also you, you weren't to know about your um, father passing away. So you know, it, it's not specifically, you know, you can't hold it against yourself. It's, um, it's a sad thing, but, you know, you just got to think about the good times, really, haven't you? I do, and I named my son after after my uh, my dad, my adopted dad. Um, yeah. Felt that was quite a healing thing to do. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of made it up to him, I think, by doing that. I feel like I somehow I did. It does make me feel better about it, for sure. Definitely. And um, would you say the running into the glass, was that more just a total accident or would you say that was a dyspraxic trait where like coordination where you just like wasn't thinking about where you're moving and you like your, your brain couldn't process the glass was there or you just yeah I, I think it was two dyspraxic traits working together lack of planning and lack of spatial awareness you know um I mean, but more than just that the, the whole losing losing control of my emotions I think was was also probably a, a, a dyspraxic trait. The way that I, I lost control, I think, of my emotions was um, because I think people on the with neurological differences can be a lot more emotional than people think, especially people on the autistic spectrum because a lot of people on the autistic spectrum might be thought of as being remote and being a Rain Man-like character and nothing could be further from the truth, some people, it's because they're overloaded with information that they can't process and therefore they withdraw rather than they are um, an unfeeling person who's only interested in hard facts. Yeah. It's like, I can only say, I don't know, it's like being on, the, uh, being on the spectrum as such, it's like having a sponge in a bucket of water and you, you go to release the water from the sponge but it doesn't go and then you've got all this like input in your brain it just ain't going nowhere um and obviously you want it to go somewhere nice but 
you know, sadly for us, the water just doesn't go where you want it to go. Um, and you end up with all this drivel in your brain and it's not, it's not digesting properly. And you, you just, it baffles, it baffles me sometimes. It baffles me too, but that's a good way of, that's certainly a good way of describing it. It's always hard, isn't it, to try and communicate it to other people, let them know what it's like. Um, so any analogy like that, I think, is, is pretty useful, not just for understanding oneself, but for trying to give people a handle about what it might be like to actually have this going on all the time. I, I, would, I would actually go one better than the last analogy, analogy rather. Imagine walking past um, a BT telecoms engineer working at a junction box uh, in your local area when they're changing all the wires around and plugging things in the different slots. That, I, I always would portray that to be the brain of a dyspraxic or a neurodivergent person. Basically, imagine trying to, being an unskilled engineer, trying to work out where the cables go. That is like the brain of a dyspraxic, I feel. The, the brain's all wired differently and like we don't we just don't know where the wires go and people can't who don't understand this Brexit like looking on the outside looking into us um i would say we're, we're basically a, a box of scrambled wires um you know imagine trying to unscramble a load of wires you've had in your attic for 10 years that yeah. basically that basically is like trying to trying to um unravel the mind of a dyspraxic i think as well, the fact that if we get into our comfort zone, sometimes we're not like that. You know, sometimes we can be efficient. And I think that makes it all the more difficult because if we're like that all the time, then people might understand um, what, you know, might get, might get, get an awareness of us and, and know how we're going to react. But for me, stress would make that that tangling of the wires, that wires put into the wrong um, hole, you know, the connections not in the right order, that all is made much worse by stress, for instance. But if I'm doing something that has an element of routine to it, that I've done many times before, then I tend to be, well, pretty much can't be detected necessarily that I am dyspraxic. So it's really difficult when you do you're able to do task A and task B, and then it's expected by yourself as well as by other people that you'll be able to do task C, and somehow you just can't. And that, that, I think that it's that sort of seemingly random nature of it, but it can just crop up, and, and, and in an unfamiliar or stressful situation, crop up quite quickly and quite badly, that I think adds to the difficulty of people being able to understand what dyspraxia is. Ourselves, as well as um, neurotypical people, I think it's, it's, it's really hard. And so dyspraxia is different. Yeah, certainly. I would say, like, when it, when it comes to, like, uh, unscrambling a wire or cable, imagine a normal person, a, a neurotypical person, trying to unscramble it. They might do it in a minute or two. We just mm. need the extra few minutes to have more time to, to uh, work out how that's going to happen. Um, and we'll get there, but we just need the extra time. Yeah. And there's the thing of the, not being able to visualise it. And then even if you do visualise it, not being able to make your hands do what your brain moves, needs to be done as well. So there's, there's the kind of two strands of dyspraxia there as well. 
Um, even if you know what you want to do, it can be hard to actually do it. And sometimes you just don't know where to, you get brain fog and you, you don't even know where to start. So yeah, tasks are difficult. <laughs> they really are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So going back a bit, at what age then did you learn that you were adopted? And did you ever feel a sense of resentment towards your birth parents? I would say I knew I was adopted before I didn't know that everybody else was. I, I, it was the, you know, I was t told as I, you know, was saying about the almost like in a bedtime story. It was part of my um, nighttime ritual for my my mum, sort of reading me a story and 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 settling me down. Although I, I didn't settle down for long, unfortunately. Terrible sleeper then and terrible sleeper now. But uh, it was always part of that, my sense of self that I'd been chosen. So, um, yeah, I, d I didn't have a moment of realisation. It wasn't an EastEnders doom, doom, doom moment. You know, it was, um, it was always part of the story. And um, I never felt any resentment towards my birth parents. When I didn't have a name or any sense of them, uh, it, I couldn't even imagine what they could have been like, and uh, no, just never, never felt that. I'm glad to say, ne never. Um, and since I found out the story of my birth mother, fly, you know, coming to Europe, um, I'm not sure of all the stages of the journey, but flying from Toronto to Europe and giving birth to me in Edinburgh. Um, I feel a real kinship with her. You know, I was with her on that journey, pre-birth. Um, maybe there was a sense of that as well, that that closeness, even though I didn't know her. But no, I, I've never, never felt any resentment at all. Oh, that's 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 pleasing to hear. I'm glad you feel like that. That's um, that's really good. The um, yeah, thing, I, thing, like I, I'd like to say, like about that, it's like, I suppose, did 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 you? Were you named, your first name, was that chosen by your birth mum or was that by the, like, where you were, where you were, like, you was being looked after before you was getting adopted? Good question. Um, the reason is that, um, well, at one point I remember my mum, my adopted mum, saying, oh, yeah, we called you Roy because you wanted something that was short and couldn't be shortened. Um, and then another time I said, oh, I think we named you after Roy Orbison. And then, but... My birth father's brother, I think, financed my birth mother's trip because he'd actually, he was a car salesman who turned out to have a knack for, for selling. He got very rich very quickly. And um, he, he was in a position to help his brother out. Um, so I think he may well have... I'm sure he financed the trip, and I think maybe there was maybe a suggestion made because um, this name was Roy that uh, that might be a good idea to call me that. Um, so I don't know. He he died young, and the, um, he didn't. The, the, the family money didn't. You know that was that was just lasted a generation. But he was in a position um, at that time. To, to, to sort things so I have to wonder 
Um, my, my birth name and my birth certificate is, is uh, James, so, um, and it's my mother's maiden name. So I was born James Seymour, which is my, which is a middle name that's run down my father's side of the family. James Seymour Hoffman is on my birth certificate. And then I was christened Roy Peter Muller um, the following year. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I'm like in awe of, of uh, I, I like things like um, the family ancestry shows you get on TV, like Hair Hunters or um, the ones with uh, Davina McCall um, on ITV where they go back and look at adopted, I think it's, it's long lost families and things like that. I've never actually thought that. I keep meaning to, to watch it. And I, I, but I do, you know, that's, since I found out my story, I've been able to watch. Um, the, that type of show. I always felt sort of disenfranchised from it before because I couldn't relate to it, you know. Um, and now it's the complete opposite. I really enjoy doing genealogical research and I really enjoy hearing other people's stories because I've got an in now that I didn't have before, you know. Definitely. And, and I, 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 well, I, I like the fact of these TV shows about uh, family um, backstories and stuff where they reunite families and that they don't just do the Hollywood ending where they only show the ones with the positive outcome where you meet your birth family and stuff. They show the the good with the bad. So like you, if if your if your family's now deceased, uh, they'll tell you rather than like not use you in a show, which I think is honourable because they could have just gone, no, nah, you're not interested enough because you're not going to have that camera, you know the or what happens at the end of the show, do they meet or not? You, just yeah. basically, you basically get told, they get, they get told there and then yeah. where their family bloodline cuts off or, you know, the, the basically they, they, they can't meet their birth, like parents, but there's children they had or there's cousins you can meet. And, you know, there's always some positive um, well, ending to it. That happened to me. I found uh, the day after um, getting my adoption records open, I found out that my birth mother had died uh, almost exactly a year before um but then uh i was able to meet to get in contact with and meet in canada um several relations which has been amazing um because when my son was born he was born when i was 44 and when i looked at his face as he was being born um that was the first time i'd looked at another human being and known that i was related to them so, you know, it's, and now I've met so many relations, half-sisters, half-brothers, cousins, you, you know, it's, it's just been, uh, aunts, um, it's been incredible for, from that point of view. Um, I'm so glad that I was able to do that, you know, because I can understand myself a whole lot better. I think if, you know, finding out dyspraxia is a thing, and, and then finding out who I was, if you like, I've just been total game changers in, in, in my life. Just can't emphasize how important both those elements are. I bet. I bet for sure. So your, up, your adopted upbringing in hindsight clearly looked to be more stable than the life you could have had with your birth parents. You have stated in the past that you feel lucky to have had a settled upbringing, as you believe you could have been dead already by now, otherwise. Is that still your mindset? Yeah, I think so, because I don't... Well, my birth parents weren't in a position to bring me up. You know, it was an extramarital affair, and 
I, my birth mother did get married, as I found out, when I was about eight. Um, and I, I think I've heard stories that, for instance, my stepbrother had problems with, with his own dad, who would have been my stepdad. And I think in that kind of situation, I'd have probably gone right off the rails, you know, and I, I'd have probably ended up drunk in the, in the gutter, you know. Um, but the other thing that could have been a problem is if I'd had, if different people had adopted me or had gone from one foster home to another, I don't think with the dyspraxia and everything, I would have been able to handle it. And I, yeah, I, I think it, I, I think I would have become an alcoholic and died, really, to be honest. Um, I think the mothers who, who brought me up were just so, so stabilizing on me that, um, you know, I think I kind of owe my life to them and to my birth mother and, and birth father and his brother for facilitating me to. They didn't know who was going to adopt me, but they did the right things. And so I was adopted by the right people. So I'm, I'm grateful to everybody involved in the story. And I'm very grateful to the birth family that I now know because I felt rapport with them right from the start. There's not been difficulty with any of them that I've met or spoken to. And so maybe, you know, things would have been all right because I would have felt this connection. If I'd grown up in Canada and they'd been around, then I think it would have been all right. If I'd been sort of farmed out, then that's where I think I would have, you know, I'd have been rudderless, I think. And I think that would have led to alcohol and very possibly not being here now. That's fair enough. I mean, you're entitled to make that opinion. It's your life. Um, I, I, I am inclined to say that, you know, you, you obviously can't um, foresee into the future, but your birth parents obviously had their reasons. And I'm guessing financially for them, it wouldn't have been an issue to, to have raised you. But I'm guessing because of the, 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 the like uh, the era, the decade and the way Canada was perhaps at the time, it probably wasn't good to have had a child out of wedlock um, in that era. Um, so although your, your uncle could have probably have helped financially, I guess, with your family. Um, yeah. it, it, it wasn't, that wasn't the, the issue. It was more a case of um, social embarrassment, I, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Billy. You know, I think that, that's why she made that three and a half thousand mile journey, a seven thousand mile round trip, you know, because it was such a stigma back then in, uh, in Toronto. The cars, if you look at pictures of Toronto, you compare them to Edinburgh in 1963, as I've done a lot of and I find it fascinating. It looks all flashy and there's tail fins in the cars and looks like New York in many ways and Edinburgh everybody's wearing um coats and, 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 and like national health specs and it's all very you know, it's 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 quite drab looking. But in actual fact the morals don't reflect the pictures. The morals at the time in Toronto were a lot less forward looking than they were in the UK. Uh, so it's quite an interesting contrast. I um, obviously this is your story, but I, I want to give you a, a little insight to what I found out a few years ago, uh, which kind of, in terms of the social embarrassment of the era, um, it kind of in contrast, it wasn't that pleasant here by all accounts because my my mum's uh, mum and dad had twelve children. Uh, I think they had twelve children altogether. Um, some were unfortunate and died at like birth um, and one, two, two of them died in an accident and the rest were like, okay. But apparently 
Um, I, I don't have this 100% to my knowledge correct, but um, my nan apparently had a child out of wedlock before she met my granddad. And because of the social embarrassment and the, you know, the way society was towards wed- uh, children out of wedlock, mm-hmm. um, she put it, she, she had the child put into care. And yeah. it, the, the other children only found us out when this child, because it was the oldest child, it di- uh, he died and the, he's, he had no other family. So he, yeah. they all got a share of, um, of his will. And they only found out about his, about his well, about him being uh, their sibling. Or he, he only came to knowledge when he died. Um, yes. And it comes back to like that hair hunter show. It's amazing what comes up. But yeah, yeah. she had 12 children with one person, but she felt so embarrassed to have had a child with someone that she wasn't married to that she just couldn't bring herself to raise that child. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. I'm probably viewing the situation over here sl- slightly through rose-tinted spectacles because she didn't have to live here after she had me. She was back, so it was sort of, I could be offloaded. And I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. But of course, there was that stigma. Um, I, I think with the authorities, socially, yeah, I said social attitudes were better over here. That's probably not the case. But as, as you say, definitely not the case. Oh, the authorities were more... We had the NHS and Canada didn't, which was a, the NHS was a big factor, I, I, I'm led to believe, in, in my mother coming here because she knew that she'd be treated um, with dignity by the NHS because of who they were. And I think that, that's a big factor. Sure. I would say, uh, I guess, the social aspect at the time was probably more or less the same more or less mm. in, in the Western uh, civilization, um, yeah. but I guess obviously the, the care and the health service over here was the thing that swung it for your birth mum. I guess so. I think that's that's the case. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that that tale. Um, you know, it's, it's such a we don't know other, other people. There's so many stories lurking behind what the people that we think we know. You know, um, it's been quite an eye opener for me researching ancestry and things like that. It does make you feel, after all these years of feeling an alien, it makes you feel more part of the human race, I think, because you know that everybody walking around has got a backstory of some sort. And I think that that does help. You know, and it, it can be very difficult emotionally sometimes, but but knowing that, you know, we're kind of all, we're kind of all related in a way, you know, so sappy as that sounds, I, I, I it just makes things like racism and prejudice all the more ridiculous if they weren't ridiculous enough already when you, you really get into it and you, you see the commonalities between people. Yeah, I would say you've only got to look back at the uh, Adam and Eve story, like story where, you know, that everyone's related. If you're religious or not, basically, we all, got, we all came from somewhere. Um, yeah. You know, we're just probably all related somewhere along the line. Um, very distantly now, but it's uh, it's a case of you know sometimes um, blood can be thicker than water, but water can run faster than blood. So it, it, to me, it doesn't matter if it's blood or water. You, you know, your family you can choose your family if you like, um, and your family can choose you, and much as you can choose your friends. So all in all, as long as you're happy and, and you're healthy, that's all that matters. And uh, well, now that I'm this great age. 
you know, I, I, I realize that all the more, you know, I wish I'd realized that. You're, you're lucky that you're a young man and you've come to that realization. It's taken me a long time to really get a handle on the basics, you know. That's what counts, you know. I totally agree. I, um, I'll give you a little insight into my background. So, I, although I know my uh, father, um, he wasn't around very much when I was little and it wasn't a nice environment. And I, I've, I've, I've expressed this on um, the Theatric Dyspraxics podcast. Uh, about my backstory but I feel like I don't know his family I don't know his his mum and dad so I've got no connection to that to my surname Um, and I don't have any pleasant memories of being with my father and stuff so kind of although I know my birth father I kind of feel like I don't in a way so I really can emphasise with what your your, your thing is for your birth parents in a, in a way I can kind of grasp it and I can kind of emphasize to a degree and I really really do um, feel pleased that you you've got a positive outlook on the situation and you know in hiding sight you understand that these things were done for your benefit rather than to your um, to, to, to have a disadvantaged you it was all yeah. to, it was all to progress your situation and I feel I feel kind of content that you're, it, you've, it's, it's worked out for the best for you. I think it has. You know, I don't romanticise them. I mean, they, 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 but I don't have, you know, I, it, they, they did the, the right thing, the practical thing, and it, my first mother must have had a lot of love behind what she did, or she couldn't have done it. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, that has given me a, a kind of, level of contentment I guess I've been looking for and help me handle my relationship in this roundabout way that I was saying with my my adopted dad where I didn't last time I saw him hadn't you know it's not a memory I want but in a in a way it's easier now to deal with that because of the bigger picture I can't quite join the dots on it but sort of spiritually I do feel better now that I know more good good i'm pleased to hear that so when did you find out that you were dyspraxic additionally at what age were your family or people in general spotting the signs or mannerisms well you know elvis died at 42 and um that was the age that i found i was dyspraxic so um that's uh, uh you know it's quite, quite late um but the, well, that was actually the first time I heard the word was when I was 42, you know. Um, I, I, I wasn't aware that dyspraxia existed. Coordination was the word that kept coming up. And my mum would mention it, teachers would mention it. Um, so I knew I had problems with my coordination, but I didn't know that related to other manifestations of dyspraxia because I didn't know there was this underlying condition beneath it. So people would pick up on clumsiness, untidiness, terrible handwriting, shirt tail hanging out, bad at sports, uh, lots of different things. And um, I hadn't figured that my clumsiness had to do with my sleep problems, which had to do with my 
difficulty visualising things like technical drawing. That um, I was the worst they'd ever seen art, things like that. Uh, I just couldn't get a, an understanding that there was a, a, a condition that was sort of an explanation for these various strands of who I was. So they, they were always there and they were picked up on, but I and nobody else seemed to actually know that it was a, dis- a condition called dyspraxia that was the cause of them. So you touched on the clumsiness. Were, was anyone ever overly fussy about you being clumsy or was you ever, was you ever mocked for that, being clumsy? Um, I would say, you know. I mean, it's, kids will pick up on anything. Um, but the first time it really got to me was when all the kids were being taken to this artificial ski slope uh, in Edinburgh called Hill End and um, it was a big I think it was primary school it was a big primary six or seven and it was a big day out big afternoon out and uh, the teacher announced it and she sort of did not to me to stay behind after class and said well all the kids would be going apart from you Roy because um, if you went you'd be a danger to yourself and a danger to the other people so that was that was pretty stark that was more distressing than just getting picked up for having my shirt tail hanging out or, or being told I needed to improve my handwriting. That was like, that was being marked out. I knew it was different, but that was that was being marked out as different, and it, it was never very good. Okay, but um, I wish she'd handled it. And I don't know what else she could have said. Oh, she was frank with me. But yeah, that 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 was difficult to to take. Okay, so you were fortunate then at 42 to get a diagnosis at the Institute for Neuropsychological Psychology in Scotland. It was meant to be the prelude to receiving treatment through special exercises, but you were priced out of attending. How did you feel after being unable to obtain the aftercare that you felt you needed? I still felt positive because I kind of, conned them into giving me the diagnosis on the, you know, as you know, that I would pay the £42 or whatever it was, roughly that, for the diagnosis and then I would go on, I mean, well, I hadn't signed anything saying I would, but the understanding was that I would go on and pay these hundreds which I didn't have for the therapy. But I was just glad to get a diagnosis and I don't know if the therapy would have, I've never read any testimonials from people said I used to have dyspraxia but it's a lot better now. So I, I don't know if it worked, actually. I, the, the diagnostic tests were pretty impressive. I mean, they, they were pretty thorough on me. Um, I know they weren't cowboys in that way. Um, and I was able to use that, being able to use that with assess, work assessment and things like that, you know. So it's, it's been very useful. It's been good to have a piece of paper that says I'm dyspraxic on it. Well, actually, several pages of, of, of a report. So it was, it was, a, it was a good experience. Um, I don't know how much they could have treated the dyspraxia. The only thing that's really helped me is doing Tai Chi. I went to Tai Chi class for a while and I learned that. And you have to keep doing it to experience the benefit of it. But I think it does help your balance. And when your balance is, and your well-being, and when your balance is a bit better, then, you know, the other dyspraxic symptoms sort of, you know, I think they, they sort of, 
lesson a little bit. If, if, you, if you're not being clumsy, then, you know, take that out of the equation and you're a bit calmer and everything's a little bit better for a while. But you need to keep doing it. It's, it's not something you can just, it's not like treatment and then you're fine after that. You, you need to keep practicing. So, um, yeah, I don't think I really missed out in a game changer by not going for the therapy. Okay. Um, when when was that? When was you forty two? What year was it that you got diagnosed? Two thousand and five. And you say it was forty pounds your diagnosis? Yeah, 40, 40 quid. Um, for the and that's like you know initial appointments forty pounds and we'll do a diagnosis. I you know I don't know if if, if other. I'm sure other people must have seen that they could do that. You know, I would imagine that if too many people had, they would have closed the door on that, you know. Um, yeah. Because I don't think it, you know, they, they, they had a lot of gadgets set up and it was to a couple of hours, so it wasn't like free money for them, you know. I'm not sure they even made a profit in my visit. Um, it was maybe a lost leader, you know, and we'll get the money, we'll recoup the money later when he comes for the treatment, but I didn't. So I don't know if it's still possible for people to do that, but. Um, it'd be really good if more people were able to get diagnosis, absolutely. We'll have to have a chat about that in private, Roy, and discuss how, um, if that's things, if that's still going, and uh, you know, if, if it's that affordability in Scotland at least is it, still around for people to go and get diagnosed. But in terms of diagnosis, how is that given to you? Is it on paper? Is it well constructed? Does it clearly say you've got dyspraxic? It does. Um, uh, it, my gross um, and fine motor coordination problems. A little bit sort of technical language, but that's not a bad thing when you're dealing with employers and things. Um, you know, um, blending with science a little bit. It can't explain how it impacts on my day-to-day life. That's that's something that varies from person to person as well. It just says that I have these these problems. So um, it's it's a good thing to have around, but. Uh, it's really hard to explain to people how dyspraxia impacts on you as a, an employee. Um, so it's useful, but not, not like just having a, a laminate I can pass and say, oh, th- this is me, and people get it. Because people don't get dyspraxia, and I'm hoping in the future, and through podcasts like this and other dyspraxia, dyspraxic media, that, that people, dyspraxics and neurotypical people, get a better understanding. I agree. The thing I would like to allude to that is I feel that I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, to have had two diagnoses for dyspraxia, one on the NHS as a child and one that we paid for as a family when I was 27 uh, for work reasons. And I, I still believe that although I've got two diagnoses on paper, the they do not stand much sway or weight in the eyes of, of a neurotypical person uh, if you're not educated on dyspraxia or hidden disabilities then the thing on paper does not really hold much authority uh, it hasn't helped me out getting one as a 27 year old in terms of my employment um, so I kind of feel like do you feel it's more a sense of getting that do you find the, the diagnosis on paper is that do you find it benefits you more in terms of making you feel more comfortable knowing that you've got dyspraxia or it helps in terms of showing people that you're officially dyspraxic? I think it helps more in terms of me knowing that there's something I can hold in my hand that says it. Yeah. I and mean, I think it's, it, 
it's good, like no, an assessment, it can play a part, but it doesn't really have a lasting effect necessarily. Certainly a lot of jobs that I've been in, they've paid lip service to it and then it's gone back to the same old, same old, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it was a limited value, but probably kind of helped my self-esteem, you know, saying I can hold this up and see I'm not making it up kind of thing, you know. It validated it, but it didn't necessarily lead to practical improvements and work. Um, it may have in a few cases, but on a day-to-day basis, limited value. Self-esteem, feeling that, yeah, this is real. I'm not just imagining this. Then it was beneficial to have that bit of paper, for sure. I agree. I feel like it's more a case of, a bit like, I suppose, going to university and getting a degree, but the degree you feel like won't mean anything until you get it on paper and you can put it on the wall. It kind of it needs to be in writing to show people so they can kind of, you know, uh, verbally and physically see that it exists. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and you know, having a degree doesn't keep you doesn't keep the rain off your head. Doesn't prevent you know you getting cold or not feeling well and all these kind of things. Same with having something seeing it, you dispatch. It's it's. Um, yeah, it's not an umbrella that suddenly protects you from everything else, um, but it does have its place from time to time. So it's just one more thing, you know, it's a, always got to keep re- reinforcing that you have this difference, you know, because you can't just mention it once and people understand it and everything changes. Um, people just carry on like nothing's happened a lot of the time, which is good in a way, because I don't know how different I am in, inside from other people. You, you can never really know even that people are seeing the same colours that you're seeing. So, you know, I don't know what it feels to be neurotypical, or maybe I do. Maybe it's when I'm relaxing and I'm not doing anything that I can't do. Maybe that's what it's like to be neurotypical all the time when I'm sitting drinking beer, watching football on the sofa and relaxed and I don't have a care in the world. Maybe maybe that's what it's like, you know, doing your job when you're neurotypical, albeit with all the stresses that course you've got cares but uh yeah that lack of stress maybe maybe that's kind of more like the neurotypical brain uh, when i'm chilling out i do and i despite all i've been saying in this podcast i do chill out and i'm happy quite a lot of the time <laughs> good to hear additionally then as well as the diagnosis of dyspraxia you most recently were diagnosed with adhd and borderline autism yeah. did this come as a great shock to you or were you well aware of your differences. Furthermore, how do you feel the latter have affected you throughout your lifetime now that you know you've got them? I think it's hard to separate them from the dyspraxia, to be honest. Um, it seems like the definition of autism has widened a lot. Um, um, and I think, as I was saying earlier, the cliche of an autistic person is this sort of unfeeling person that's obsessed with facts and has special interests. And I think I have, I certainly have some of those traits, but I wonder how much of that is in a reaction to having dyspraxia. I've just concentrated on my safe places, you know, but things that I feel comfortable in. Um, so I don't know if it's kind of, 
artistic-like behaviour, but not what you would understand as being autism. Because I'm quite kind of, I'm a feeling kind of emotional kind of person, but I can't switch off because I get overloaded. But the real, the thing that I have that I don't know anyone with dyspraxia, although I've read people with dyspraxia saying it, I have a real bad noise aversion. Um, dogs barking, balloons popping, cars backfiring, kids with cap guns used to drive me crazy. Um, anything like that, I, I just can't stand. And that socially, that has been the most severe symptom I've, I've had from my neurodifferences. Um, trying to explain to people you're not scared of dogs, you, you don't have a phobia about balloons, it's just you, it, it's like a cannon going off next year when they pop, and the same with the dog barking. And, you know, my son, when he was younger, I'd go to parties, pick him up, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd walk around and I, I couldn't go. There was invariably balloons from the previous night kind of lying around the, the carpet and, I, and they were popping like mad, you know, and I, I couldn't go in. Um, other parents would go in and I was trying to explain why I was, or trying to explain to the parent that was hosting the party what the situation was. And that's been a lifelong thing. I, I hate that. I, it's been the worst aspect of the whole thing for me. And that's, you would call that an autistic spectrum thing rather than a purely um, dyspraxic thing. But I, other things that you might think of as being autistic, I'm not sure. Um, I think some of them, as I say, might be a reaction to just sticking to my safety zones because I'm not an all-rounder. I'd like to be, but I tend to just get obsessed with certain things because I feel safe with them. Um, so I think it's it's really difficult to say we're one to define them and say, yes, this is dyspraxia, this is autistic, this is you know um, something else, this is this is mental health, this is this is whatever. I, I can't unpick the strands. I, I, I would love to know where I sit on that kind of spectrum, but um, I don't. I don't know, and I, I don't think I ever will really find out exactly. It, it, it kind of um, baffles me, though, how um, you've become a musician uh, in, in, as an adult and you, you, you've got them sensory issues in the fact that you don't like them triggered noises, like balloons popping or, you know, certain, you're, you're, um, you're sensitive to certain noises, but you're, you're a musician that goes on stages and, and, reacts, and has reactive crowds. How, how does that affect you? Um, well... For some reason, it must be because I felt my safety zone. Somebody banging a snare drum at soundcheck is okay um, for me. I can take that. I, I don't know. I, I wish you could answer that question. Um, it is, it is uh, sharp, sudden noises, right? You know, I think it's a matter of degree because if I'm walking past, if I'm walking down the road and a car suddenly beeps its horn, I'll be slightly startled. And I think the level that startles me is equivalent to the level that a balloon popping would startle a person that didn't have this. You know, it'd be like, oh, you know, they would react, but it wouldn't make them feel sick like it does me. It wouldn't make them, they wouldn't feel the after effects for, you know, for the next half hour like I do. Um, so I think it's all a level of, how much it affects you. And for some reason, somebody doing a sound check doesn't affect me. Um, 
Noise also affects me that problem screening things out. Noise and visually too bright lights, you know, like lights you might get in a fast food outlet or something like that. They they make me feel uncomfortable. That sounds like a kind of artistic thing to me. Um, it's it's really hard, as I say, to, to to know why certain things affect me and other things don't. But they have consistently through my life. Um, I'd love to be able to deal with it better, but I, I can't. It's, it's as much part of me as, you know, it's, it's that is part of my identity, like it or not. I can't turn it on or off. Um, and that's socially very awkward. I mean, I, I'm used to not being like a typical person of my age all my life, really. You know, never driven a car, always had to get a lift from people. Um, you know, always kind of felt like a, a big kid, really, in, in, in some ways. Never fully grown up, never not quite got my both legs in my trousers yet, if you know what I mean. I'm kind of still a bit of a kind of half-in, half-out sort of person, always have been. But I've kind of faked it enough with the music, to, I suppose, to to get by in, in, in a way, you know. I mean, I, I I don't really know what my strengths and weaknesses are till you know, till I can end up surprising myself that I can do something, or I find out uh, I'm actually I've over overreached myself here. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's it's as we were saying earlier about the inconsistency of dyspraxia. You know, you're never quite sure what you can accomplish. You don't want to. You don't want to set the ceiling too low, but you don't want to make a fool of yourself by doing something that you couldn't do in a million years. And that can yeah. be difficult when you're a performer, as I have been sort of semi, semi-professionally over the years. Yeah, interesting. The So going back a bit further to your childhood, how was your development? Was it delayed at all or was it relatively straightforward in terms of education? Um. It's hard, well, I mean, it's, it's so long ago, half a century, you know. Um, I I still have the report cards, uh, but then they really seem to say that, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of good Bs and the odd A here and there. Um, yeah, art, abysmal, technical drawing, completely abysmal, metal work, woodwork, all that kind of stuff, dreadful. Um, gym, can't do, all these kind of things. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't say that I necessarily took longer to do things that I could do. I mean, like cycling, for instance. I passed my cycling proficiency test at school, just like all the other, other kids, no problem first time. Things that I couldn't do, I still can't do. So development, things that the, the things that I was able to do, I could kind of do from the get-go, but things that I couldn't do, I hardly got any better at at all. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's development, really. It's just just, just certain areas, like, just don't go there, you know? And that, that's been the, the, the way for me all the way through. Music's a bit different because, you know, just, just playing the guitar and things, you do get better. You, your neural pathways do start firing, you know, in your own peculiar way. Um, and I know that... So people find that with the piano and things that tend to be adaptive, things that happen in your head or you consciously adapt within yourself that enables you to do things because you've got that enthusiasm for the music and that determination doesn't always work as I, as I, I found out on many occasions, but it does get you somewhere. 
and you do develop. But these academic subjects and, and work as well, I, I don't really think progression really comes in it and that, that sort of baffles people, you know. They can't understand it. If you spend enough time at something and you don't show progress, it must be because you're not committed. And that, you know, I, I you probably know what I mean. I think I think that is a thing that's kind of common to most of us with dyspraxia that you know trying doesn't necessarily lead to progress and, and that's hard for other people to understand sometimes definitely did uh, anybody pick up on the undetected differences during your education did you struggle at school specifically like in terms yeah. of your handwriting diagnosis yeah ha- handwriting sport Anything to do with technical, you know, woodwork, metalwork, technical drawing, as, as I was mentioning, art, um, and just being uh, untidy and disorganised. Yeah, school, I mean, English history, okay, that kind of thing. Um, arithmetic was okay. Maths, I found hard to, to grasp. And it was okay with numbers, but when it came to, if A is this and C is that and blah, blah, you know, it's that, that kind of conceptual stuff I found really really hard but division and subtraction and multiplication and all that were okay for me um but kind of conceptualizing things in three dimensions was really hard so would you say that given you were diagnosed later in life with dyspraxia adhd and borderline autism would you go back to school and redo the education given what you know about yourself now yeah, I, I don't think it's half as bad as it was. I mean, my son's inherited a few of my coordination issues. Um, he's not inherited um, the, the aversions that I have, like the noise thing and that kind of stuff. But finding gross motor coordination, I think you can tell he's the son of a, a dyspraxic, you know. Um, and he went to finding gross motor coordination classes in primary but they still it's another class he's still expected to be able to draw and write neatly you know it's like it doesn't add up it's not joined up thinking here and i think so that's still the case i don't think it'd be a, i don't think it'd be a, a cakewalk you know but it would be better um so yeah i'd, I'd gladly go back and with the, the understanding of myself as well you know i could maybe i might be a bit more of a Clown, you know, rather than introverted, I might be able to send myself up in ways, you know, because I knew, yeah, you know, you can find your find a niche for yourself in your social group that I didn't really have, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I would like to go back, yeah, for sure. Okay, and how did you find social interactions then growing up? It was difficult because there was always these things that you didn't participate in for one reason or another, you know, so you could kind of go, you could go five, you could do five things your friends were doing, but the sixth thing was going to be a, a problem. So you were never really in it all the way, you know, um, and I was, I was pretty, I was pretty shy. I could have handled the adoption thing had it not been for the dyspraxia and I could have handled the dyspraxia better if I had a more sort of solid sense of who I was and this is just another aspect of who I was. But I really had n- no idea, you know, what what planet I was from, really. Uh, I think so. It was really to do with the, uh, I think, 
the difference that my dyspraxia brought out in me, not being able to go to parties with his balloons, not being able to go to firework displays, not being able to play football, all, all this kind of stuff. It, it all added up to being that bit different. And it has, as I say, manifested itself in my adult life. You know, the guy that doesn't drive, the guy that can't play a gig if you've got balloons in the you know in the hall because he, he's too nervous. Um, it, you know, he starts sweating and he... You know, he has to leave, and that, that's still me. So, so there's quite a bit of that then, and there's, there's quite a bit of that now, to be honest. Okay, and you went to a Glaswegian university to study English. What was yeah. that like, and did you adjust to new surroundings easily, having grown up in Edinburgh? Did you feel like a fish out of water? Yeah, I, I, I didn't adjust very Easily. I've, I don't think I ever adjusted. I lived there for over 30 years. I don't think I ever got adjusted, to be honest. It, the, it just played up the differences, you know? Because you go to a party and people were, I'd be sitting in the refectory and people would ask me, what school did you go to? And pretty quickly realised they were trying to find out if it was a Protestant school or a Catholic school. And then there's a lot of stigma about Edinburgh. Edinburgh was supposed to be snobby and people were mean and Glaswegians supposed to be really friendly and generous and warm-hearted. Um, so that was, people weren't shy to tell you that and I still hear that now and it's, it's now manifests itself. What was true then of Glasgow's now seems to be presented as being the way that Scottish people are. And um, I, I think it's, it's you know, we're, we're all Glaswegians now really. And I, I feel very uncomfortable with that. I remember going to a, a party and, and, and a guitar was being passed around and uh, I was playing, I thought, I was playing a few chords, I was doing okay, and then this guy kept going, oh, yes, Jane, yes, Jane. And I thought, Jesus, you know, what, what was that to talk to somebody? You know, and I was like, and I, and I must have said something, he said, oh, just Glasgow humour, son, just Glasgow humour. I thought, that's Glasgow humour, you can stick it up your arse, you know? And I... I with that socially aggressive aspect of it um, that I've, I've found difficult to, to cope with, you know, and I found it difficult then, and um, now I see it, I see it manifesting itself in uh, the way people talk about Scotland, talk Scotland up over England, and it's just the way people used to talk Glasgow up over Edinburgh, and I, I really don't, I don't want anything to do with that, you know. We're all, uh, as I say, we're all, we're all the same under the skin. And social attitudes surveys underpin that as well. People will say, oh, Scotland's had a better COVID period than England. And that's absolute rubbish. You know, the stats don't bear that out, but that is the perception. I heard um, Angus Monroe say that on your podcast, and I was, I was shouting at my smartphone. Um, the, the stats don't bear that out, but because Nicola Sturgeon isn't Boris Johnson, that's all she has to do, not be Boris Johnson. You know, I, I'm, I'm not pro-Brexit and I'm not pro-Skexit. I, I just don't, I don't believe in, in separations. I don't believe in flag waving. Um, I don't believe in people bigging themselves up and being better than other people. So, uh, yeah, I, I found that in Glasgow and I found it, it's permeated a lot of, because of social media, really, it's permeated how Scottish people can, a certain section of Scottish people can present themselves and uh, I feel very uncomfortable with it, you know. We, we we have a in the UK in the England rather we have a north and south divide. Uh, yeah. we used to, and I can kind of there's no religion behind that, but 
it kind of it, it still exists in the fact that like you, it's just ways of living that's different and attitudes towards southerners and northerners that sometimes don't really go down too well but in anything if when when i do it when, when things are mixed it, it actually is perfectly fine um but no i can't personally emphasize or understand the religious aspect of living in edinburgh and glasgow uh it i can i can kind of like look back on history and look at say northern ireland and the republic of ireland and see how they contrasted but it kind of beggars belief although certain populate certain um uh religious um people lived in certain cities I, I never quite understood that why it made it important for them cities to be totally in favor of one religion rather than the other well glasgow is pretty i don't know what the statistics are but there's a you know there's a lot of protestants and you know rangers versus celtic really so um you know uh it's it's a divided place very divided scotland's a very divided place which makes the whole ascribing Scots with a certain character on mass, um, let alone describing Glaswegians with a certain character on mass, but it's just not the case, you know. And and, and but that's the that's the world that we live in. We live in a world of um, sort of uh, identity politics, you know, uh, and uh, people draw people like to draw distinctions. And I, I think social media, for all that it's good and, and bringing people together, um, such as with dyspraxia and other things, it can also tear people apart and be very divisive because it, people will go that extra mile with a mouse or a, in their hand or a, on a keyboard that they wouldn't face to face. And it can it can end or damage friendships. So, yeah, I don't really like, like the atmosphere at the moment, yeah. just as I'm sure a lot of people are very uncomfortable with uh, with Brexit Britain. Yeah. Certainly. So what what or who sparked your interest in music, poetry and performing? When Elvis died, I was mentioning he died when he was 42, the same age that I uh, discovered the big B, dyspraxia. Um, I'd never been that into pop, you know. I'd, I'd played my dad's 78s and... Uh, and you know, in that, like from the 30s and 40s, and I don't really take any notice. And then the night after he died, the local radio station, Radio 4, played like three hours of his records non-stop, and I taped them off the radio just, you know, with a, a microphone and an uh, old cassette recorder, and I just I just thought, oh, this is great. Why did nobody tell me about this? And then, that, so Elvis made me want to play the guitar, and then I got the Beatles, and then... Through the Beatles, I started hearing about Bob Dylan, and and um, that kind of got me into finding out about poets like Allen Ginsberg and people like that. So, yeah, it was it was uh, it was those guys really that sparked my interest, and uh, I think uh, I kind of started out wanting to do what they'd been doing like you know, twenty years before. Really, never quite achieved that, but that was the initial motivation. And uh, when did you learn to play instruments such as guitar? Did it come to you relatively easy or was there a lot of perseverance and, and struggles? A lot of perseverance. You know, I think my guitar playing would have come... Had, we, had YouTube and 
those days I think I'd have come on a lot more, you know. I sometimes watch YouTube videos about playing the guitar and piano, I think, God, they're so dyspraxic friendly, you know. You just go over things and you can pause it and go back and you don't have to conceptualise because you're watching the person do it in real time, you know, and it makes it so much easier. So I think uh, I think I've probably got better in the last... You know, I probably... I probably stayed about the same for about 15 years. And then playing with bands got my playing better in some respects, you know, because I was having to listen to what other people were doing and it made me feel a bit more of a musician rather than just the guy that plonked on the guitar. And, and recently, as I said, just, just sitting down and going through things on video um, has helped me as well. So it's an ongoing thing. I think I'm probably better now in my late 50s than I was you know, certainly when I was 25, you know, um, because of the media out there that's available, it, it really is helpful. I, I'm a, you, you, you get some crazy people making YouTube instructional videos, of course, you know, but you, you also get some really thoughtful ones and the patience that people have when they're doing these things. It, it's great, very dyspraxic friendly. So any dyspraxic musicians, you know, um, the one piece of advice I would have apart from if you can try and work out what your what your boundaries are, which I never have, so that you don't limit yourself, but you don't make a fool of yourself. The other piece of advice I would give is uh, find the right YouTube videos to learn from, and, and you'll find they are really, um, yeah, I think they're very dispassionate friendly. It's a, it's a great way to learn. That's I, you know, a book or a record. I agree about the YouTube um, watching demonstrate, like watching other people do stuff. Um, I don't obviously play music instruments or sing myself, but in terms of how to do a podcast or you know other things, it's helped me out learning from other people physically, physically seeing people on screen showing you. Um, Makes all the difference, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and you can go back because part of the thing is the tent. We were talking about. I kind of gloss over the unintentionally glossed over the ADHD aspect when we were talking earlier. But, uh, yeah, just maintaining attention can be difficult with the best will in the world. So you miss stuff. And, of course, with the right, with the YouTube video, you can go back and you can, you're not, they're not rushing by, you're not taking their time, it's all pre-recorded, so you can just go back and take as much time as you need. It's, it, it works, it's simple, but it works really well. Uh, and I find the same with podcasts, which is my favourite way of maintaining my concentration when I'm, uh, I've got chores to do, you know, or, or uh, a task is um, mostly music uh, podcasts. Um, I'm in control, you know. I I can pause and uh, and it, you know, it's it's. I really like when you go into things in depth that you might not get on standard sort of radio program. And yeah, they they kind of podcasts are my best friend in the virtual world. I think you know. Um, I, I'm. Obviously, there's good ones and bad ones, but the, the good ones, uh, yeah, I mean, they're really, really helpful in maintaining my concentration as a, a background thing. The, the right background noise, the right background music, the right background chat, I find really helpful. The wrong background noise, chat, radio, TV, whatever, has the complete opposite effect. You know, um, you walk into a bank these days, you've got music playing. I mean, Why? You know, um, things like that. It's so hard to concentrate. You've got bright lights and music in places you don't need to have bright lights and music. So, you know, we, we live in a, 
a world with, that seems to have a very short attention span, which in some ways mirrors those of us with dyspraxia, ADHD, um, but in other, in other ways, we don't get the peace that we need when we go walk into a shop or, or we get in a bus or something like You know, it's, it's jangling you all the time. So it's, yeah. uh, and I find podcasts, you know, they kind of dismantle that a little bit and you can just take them at, at a slower pace anyway. And you can, you've got that pause button and that rewind button and you're, you're as much in charge of the podcast as the person that creates it. So I, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely fascinating how you can just pick up and leave and carry on in your own time and uh, your own in, in energy. Like you can't do that with a TV show and you can't do that with radio in general. You can't just like stop and start. We can, like say, BBC Sounds apps and stuff like that, but it's um, with podcasts. It's just so much. It just runs so much better for the for the person listening rather than for the people making it. I presume. And I think the key word you said there was energy as well, you know. Um, you know, you, and you have, I'm a morning person. You know, I, my, my energy kind of goes in a, you know, a graph. It, it kind of peaks quite early in the morning and then it's sliding down the other side of that energy mountain pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, you can, to anything like that, the YouTube videos that I was mentioning or, or the podcasts, you can, you can use them when you're most amenable to them, you know, and uh, you can get the most out of them. So uh, I think that's great. That's a huge improvement. I think as well, and if I could redo my school days um, as a way of learning rather to, I still have to sit in a classroom and listen to a teacher draw on and be thinking about my lunch. Of course I would. But to be able to do that in my own time and, you know, learn that bit of French that just going right past me or, you know, learn that algebra term or something that I hadn't quite caught and I couldn't read my handwriting in my jota. You know, look it up and or listen to a podcast about it or some sort of instructional video. That would be great. I'd, I'd really benefit from that. Yeah, I would I would agree and say to anybody listening, if you're ever unsure about something in terms of like music or entertainment, there's always going to be a video on YouTube or a podcast to talk you through it and give you um, a helping hand. So, yeah. Roy, at what age then did you start writing your own music and who inspired you the most in terms of musical performance rather than voice uh, vocally? Um, I think I was about 17. It was the Beatles, really, with a big influence. Um and Bob Dylan, you know, I just I couldn't believe some of the songs. You know, when I got into it more, it was more than just the songs that you knew from being on the radio, you know. I was like, I couldn't believe that they were, uh, I remember I'm the Walrus, I couldn't believe the lyrics of that. And that really, I thought, I'd, I'd like to write something like that, you know. But of course, and, and I started out, I, my songs were either too simple or complete gobbledygook, you know. Um, it took me a long time to get better at the craft, despite being inspired. I, I, I find it hard to apply in a way that people could actually relate to. Because wordplay and puns always came easily to me, but they could get in the way of um, of actually connecting, actually saying what was... Uh, I didn't really have much to say. I mean, I, I, the thought of writing a song about being clumsy and, and having coordination problems, as I would then have called it, 
it would have been completely un unimaginable, really. So, um, or being adopted, you know, I mean, adopted was, it was just, I didn't really, I didn't think it was safe to discuss that. I remember one time at, at school, um, at the end of an arithmetic lesson, just before lunch, um, teacher went out of the room and, and all these guys came up to me and started gobbing in my, my blazer. And I, I went home uh, for lunch because I lived right next to the school, really, with my blazer dripping in, in gob. And I asked, later asked one of the boys, you know, why did you do that? And he said, oh, somebody told us you were adopted. And for them, that was enough reason to um, to gobble over me, you know. Um, so I didn't feel safe talking about any, any of that stuff, even after school. Um, so I, I really didn't have anything to say, really. Um, and I covered that up with uh, with wordplay. I got into Elvis Costello because he was really good at the wordplay and stuff. But he also was very good at making an emotional connection with his voice, and uh, I didn't have that. So it took me a long time to find my kind of niche where I felt I could, uh, I did have something to say, and I could say it in a way that people might want to listen to it. Sure. And so how did the possibility then of recording and releasing your own studio albums come about? Was it straightforward or on reflection, did having neurological differences hold you back in that respect? Definitely held me back because everything happened 10 years later than you might expect, you know. So I kind of joined a band that actually played gigs and made records that a record company saw fit to put out when I was about 31. And then I was in a few bands, a few records, and I got few things played by John Peel and things like that, which was like an ambition of mine, and then that, that happened. Um, and then first solo record, that was a sing, seven inch single put out by a German label that was set up just to put out debut singles for people in Hamburg, and that was when I was 40. Um, so everything kind of happened later, because it just takes me longer to work out how to do things and to get good at stuff. But, as we were saying earlier, that's where the progression has been. If you look at my employment record or even my social aspect of my life, I mean, I just, my, from the age of oh, 24 to the age of 39, I was just drifting from bed sit to bed sit, you know, um, with no visible sort of bettering of my circumstance. And it's same with employment, just going from one job where you got an extra tenner in your gyro to another job where you got an extra tenner in your gyro, your bus fares paid, that kind of thing, agency work. So, yeah, it, it, nothing was really heading anywhere, really. Um, and then I seemed to get things together um, when I was a lot older than when most people who do something in music would expect to get it together. So neurological differences had a lot to do with that. Um, and just, just settling down took me a longer period of time generally. I wasn't unsettled in the sense of raving all night, um, just just not settled within myself. Uh, it's, it, it's taken a long time now, having a family is, you know, having a child has given me a sense of inner peace that I, I wouldn't have experienced before. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of been late, late in life, but uh, as with finding out the adoption things and finding out with the SPACs here, the fact it happened late, uh, I do wish I had known earlier, but more than that, I'm glad that it did happen, no matter what age. So, uh, 
find the kind of musical direction late in life, just like everything else is, is for me, you know, pretty much been late in life. Certainly, and I'm just going to go off topic there. So you touched on moving bedsit to bedsit when you yeah. was um, starting the music uh, as a, as, a, as a young adult. Um, mm. So how did obviously you didn't know you was autistic or on the spectrum of dyspraxia, etc. At the time, so how did you cope with the uncertainty of moving home to home, despite the fact that you had had a settled upbringing uh, with with fantastic adoptive parents yeah. uh, how, how did that contrast as, a, as an adult affect you I, I think when you've got a kind of I, I think I just always thought I was rehearsing for some you know just putting in time till the right situation came along and in a way I suppose I was but I wasn't really conscious of living, you know, with both feet on the ground, facing forward, if, if that makes any sense. I was yeah. just, I don't know, I was talking about drink earlier, maybe slightly self-mythologizing, but, I, you know, I, I never had an alcohol problem as such. But if you're going out and you're having a few drinks, it's amazing what you'll put up with. You know, life seems okay, you know, kind of living from day to day in a, in, in a way. You know, as long as I can have a few pints and, you know, loads of short-term, you know, girlfriends, nothing that lasted, you know, but it's kind of get, getting by, you know, it was enough to get by. And I, I was kind of conscious that I was getting by not really living. But, you know, I was having a good enough time to put up with it, really. Um, I'd crash every now and then, you know, just, just kind of melt down, I suppose, you know, just, uh, you know, I get stressed about certain things, worried about certain things, and I'd, I'd, I'd you know, I, nothing dramatic, but I, I, I could, I, I would, there was a lot of bumps along the way, but I was by and large getting by and, and kind of in a comfort zone, but it was it was much narrower than I, I realised. It's only since I've really, you know, started doing things that, I know are me, if that makes any sense at all, that I realised how not me I was being. And I was just tagging along in the pub and I was just tagging along at parties and we just putting the hours in at work, you know, such as it was. It wasn't really anything other than getting getting by. And, and uh, I think that reflected in the music I was trying to do as well. And I, I, when I, I started getting a sense of me, that's when I started writing a lot more songs and the songs seem to start connecting more with, with, with people. So, yeah, I think I kind of blossomed late, and I, I think that is can be a symptom of neurological differences. Maybe some people with neurological differences, um, it's the complete other way. You know, maybe Mozart was some sort of autistic savant, you know? But for me, uh, very much took... took took the very long route, took the circular route, took the circuitous route. Um, so, yeah, that, but, you know, I, I, the thing is, I don't, I don't feel, particularly, even I'm 57, I don't feel, I don't feel it because I don't feel I've adhered to the, the timeline that everyone else adheres to. So it's got upsides as well. Sure. So 
Do you ever suffer from stage fright or anxiety brought on by your dyspraxia when, when performing or reading poetry? Uh, I tend to just worry that people, whether people will turn up or not. And I think that's kind of semi-conscious strategy not to worry about anything else. You know, it's like, oh, God, uh, you know, is anyone going to come tonight? And then invariably, well, I'm talking the present tense, but of course not been playing any gigs for quite a while because of the situation. But I, that takes care of the worry. I don't worry about the performance. When I've been reading poetry, I miss having a guitar. And I also, I never quite found my, my voice I was always a bit strident, a bit impersonating other people, unconsciously impersonating other people, you know, speaking in that kind of poet voice that you, you hear people emphasising certain words and things like that. I was never quite happy with that, actually. But um, performing with the guitar, yeah. Um, I think first couple of gigs, stage fright after that, just moved on to, is anyone going to turn up here? Quite relatively cool about actually the performance aspect of it. Certainly. And you came to the attention of national radio stations with BBC Radio 6 Music playing your music, uh, which led to a personal invitation from DJ Mark Riley asking for you to go and perform live for the station. You were later yeah. invited back to perform with a band. The widespread acclaim soon followed as Mark Riley was later quoted as saying, Roy Muller was... Scotland's best kept secret. I bet you were ecstatic with the attention you got and the music, um, the music that uh, got received. Well, it was quite something because I mean, the, he said on the radio show, he said, "Oh, you know, Roy Muller, I never, a week ago, I'd never heard them. Now I'm his biggest fan when he played one of my songs. That was nice." And then he said that thing about. His first question to me when we did the session was uh, after we played the opening song, he said, oh, you know, I think we went away and we came back. And before we played the second song, he said, uh, hi, you know, hi, Roy, welcome to Six Music. You know, I put it to you that uh, you, Roy Muller, are Scotland's best kept secret. So that felt good. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I sent him... He picked up on a record that had been issued by this label in Canada called uh, The Beautiful Music that I'd made. Um, so he, uh, yeah, just just sent sent it to him in a jiffy envelope, you know, and, and um, he he just was going through his, his CDs that he that he got, and he stuck that one in, and he liked it. So it was it was fairly straightforward, and it felt good. I sent him things after that. Um, and, you know, uh, I think the next album we played one song off that and then the album after that, he played one song once and then Flatline, you know. So um, he was my biggest fan. Now, um, Radio Silence. So uh, it, it was good at the time, but, uh, I mean, you know, if you're listening, Mr. Mark Riley, I do have new music in the pipeline, but uh, it hardly set me up. But I've got a BBC radio session, you know, it exists somewhere in a vault in Manchester, Salford. I mean, I've got my own copy, but, you know, it's there. It's a real 3D thing that I did. That that really feels good. Most people don't get to do that. I wouldn't say it's a step. Unfortunately, it wasn't a stepping stone to anything else. But in of itself, of course, I'm, I'm very happy that it happened. The thing I'd like to sort of 
get across though is radio uh bbc radio six music is more for like an introducing new talent or upcoming talent and it kind of it, i don't think it's I, I don't really listen to the station but from what i know it's more there to introduce and then send you on your way i don't think they're there to sort of the tom, tom robertson shows like that um you know bbc introducing yeah but i think wiley he, he's you know he has his favorites so if you're in with them you tend to you know you tend to come back i remember this other this guy saying to me oh when he had to go to session oh that's great you know you'll be back well i did go back to this this other band you know, um the following year uh, i was sort of part of it but not the main man um, so that was kind of true but uh yeah you know i i don't i don't know what happened um i think maybe there was a it used to be Mark and his producer, and then I think there's another guy got involved in the selection of the music. I, I don't know, you know. Um, I've been away for long enough now from putting out any new music that it might not be a bad idea to give it another go. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you got you got nothing to lose really if you go for it again. Try go for it again. Um, you know, in times like these, we kind of need more music and and different voices being heard because you know we're all you know we look at tv we've got the same faces saying the same things mm. look at the main main radio stations they've all got the same playlists it kind of it needs place like stations like six music um to to give different voices that you might not have heard before such as such as yourself Roy. um you know i'm, I'm hoping that the new audience from dyspraxia community is going to hear your music <laughs> and um you're going to have to unfortunately start you know get busy again you're going to get, you're going to get your vocal cords um, flexed again. How do you feel about that? Well, as long as I don't have to duet with Lawrence Welsh, I don't think I could um, <laughs> that, you know, don't have enough volume in my voice. Yeah, no, that, that would be great. I would love that, of course, because lockdown has uh, either coincided or caused me to really start seriously getting back into doing music, you know. Um, I was doing a lot of poetry uh, before that, uh, kind of when lockdown happened, it made me and solace and not I not kind of enjoyed lockdown because I have in many respects. But uh, what got me through the early parts where it was still dark, because people forget, you know, we think of it as a kind of we're locked down through the summer. I started back in March, um, so in those cold east coast of Scotland nights. Um, Reading and writing poetry wasn't doing it for me, but what was doing it for me, giving me sustenance and kind of feeding my soul was, was music. And I re and uh, I realised that I, I, I was missing out, you know. I, I realised writing poetry was actually getting me a bit depressed because it was always about me. And, you know, um, it's always a regretful tone, you know. It's, I couldn't get away from that, my technique, I just couldn't kind of like upbeat stuff from poetry was always a bit a downer you know um, and the music you've got that extra strand you know you could you can say something that sounds quite down but you have a chord progression that suggests hope or you can undercut a quite jaunty tune with lyrics that might be a wee bit darker you know and it just felt much more in tune with my biorhythms so I, and it was long enough since unfortunate experiences I had in music uh Linked to dyspraxia, where I, 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 I kind of failed 
um, in certain performances with bands when I couldn't do stuff. And that was, you know, I'd got over that because enough time had elapsed. So it felt like the right time to get into it again. So uh, I think uh, that writing songs is, I've come back to in a, a very, it, it just makes me happy more than anything else. It really, really, um, when you, you, you're involved in writing a song and it comes to fruition, it's very hard to beat. And I realised I'd been missing out on that. So it's, it's, it's just, with lockdown as well, it's like suddenly no, no one's playing, no feeling competition with anyone. You know, it's like, almost like permission to be yourself in a way. Because, you know, you don't, you're not missing out if you're not going out there gigging, because nobody is. Um, it was quite liberating, actually. I'm just saying, you know what, I can do whatever the heck I, I want to do with music, you know, that, within my limitations. And I can surprise myself, because my limitations probably aren't as limiting as I thought they were, you know. So it's been very positive for me as a, I, I don't like call myself a musician because I don't feel an all-rounder enough, but as a music maker, I, uh, I've really come back to that quite hard, quite big, um, you know, in the last six months or so. And you know, that's really made me feel, raised my mood a lot, actually. If if COVID's got anything to come out of it, I would say that I'm overjoyed that it's brought you to the conclusion that you should perhaps come back to do music and get writing again and performing because I feel like that that, that is a gift that you should share with people because I, I can't, as someone with dyspraxia that has no creative like mindset, I can't perform, I can't dance, I can't sing, can't really write songs. That is, you know, doing what you're doing is creative. You know, that is that is creative, definitely creative. It's not all about singing or dancing or um, writing a song. You know, um, this is. And I know that from not just from your podcast and what you're doing, but just listening to podcasts in general. Putting together a podcast is a creative act. And if you don't have creativity, you can't do it. So you are being creative. You might not be being creative in a Britain's Got Talent definition of creative, but you're definitely being creative. So, you know, credit to you in, in, in doing it. And it is definitely a creative act, what you're doing right now. Oh, that's very kind of you to say, Roy. Um, in 2014, you paid a musical homage to Lou Reed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Were you phased by playing in front of the home crowd, given your dif- dif- differences with, you know, um, with certain aud- with certain audiences and parts of the uh, of the country? I was phased because it was a very small venue, so the capacity was 15, so you could see it. You know, there's a few performances, but they were all in front of a very small number of people. And the less people in the venue, the more nerve-wracking it is. Because if you're playing in front of 100 people, that might, or 300 or 400, it might seem initially, oh, if I screw up, I'm going to screw up. And so, you know, such a big number of people. But you don't screw up because you can't see the... You can't see the voice of their eyes, you know. It's 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 there's a kind of calm there playing in front of a big audience. A, well, not a big audience if you're a, a rock star, but for me, a big audience, you know, in the hundreds. If you're playing in front of ten, 
15, 20 people and they're all sat in chairs watching you, that's kind of nerve-wracking. So that was, you get into it, but you you can't get away with your normal moves, you know? If you go on stage and the mic's there and your guitar's there and... You know, you look around and the drummer's there, the bass, but, you know, you, you kind of feel, oh, yeah, this is where I should be. And I've got to see the old stages are the same, no matter where you go in, in the world. It's like you're either on stage or you're not. It's like you're either asleep or you're not. You know, it's just, it doesn't matter if you're on stage in Edinburgh, London, Timbuktu or Tokyo. There's more in common with the fact you're on stage than where that stage happens to be. And for me, that's that's the comfort zone, you know. But if you're playing in a room um, unamplified in front of people and you can see all the people, then you don't have that comfort zone. So it was it was quite uh, daunting because it was it was sort of dry. You know, it's just like oh god, there's nothing there. There's there's no lighting. There's no reverb. There's nothing to work with here. Just me. And that's uncomfortable. I think for anybody, um, unless you're just Mr. Performer, Mr comfortable in your own skin I'm, I can't say I, I really feel comfortable in my own skin so yeah it was daunting but oh, it was very pleasurable sure so in 2019 you collaborated with the founder of Dyspraxia and Life and Dyspraxic Circle uh, Pete Guest to perform on a demo track called Greatest Habit are there plans to release the song in full and when <sighs> Oh, well, I would ask the same question, Billy. I, I, I don't know. Um, no plans as far as I know. Uh, maybe next year's Dispraxy Awareness Week would be a good time to do it. Uh, uh, yeah, I would say it was, you know, um, Pete really wrote the song and, and uh, he says that I kind of did the music, but I really just found the chords that landed the melody he was singing. I don't want to play down my contribution, but it was it was really... Uh, I was midwife more than co-writer on that one. So it's, it's kind of, it's Pete's song. And if he wants to make a record of it, um, I'm very happy, you know, to to participate. Um, or, you know, I, I'm not sure what's happening. But uh, I think, I, I get the feeling something will happen. But I don't know of any definite plans. Okay, fingers crossed for that. Would you be open then to collaborations with other dyspraxics in the future? Yes, I mean... I actually play in a band with a, um, again, we're backtracking to when bands were a kind of thing, you know. Um, but I, pre-lockdown, I was playing in a band with a guy, um, Dave, who's dyspraxic. Um, and, uh, yeah, that just kind of came out after we'd already got to know each other. Um, uh, that, that we were both uh, dyspraxic. Um, I mean, he's very different sort of for me. He, he can drive. He's he's doesn't mind loud noises, dogs barking, all that kind of stuff. Um, I but we both play the A chord in the same unorthodox fingering. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, so we have we have set the certain musical things we do that are the same. Uh, that seem to be to do with our dyspraxia. So I think yeah, definitely. You know, I, I find it hard if somebody is in there. I couldn't just collaborate. Say I could collaborate with anybody with dyspraxia who happened to be a musician. By the way, I couldn't collaborate with any neurotypical people that, that do music because sometimes it's just a taste thing or 
or whatever, you know, you you, you don't gel. But um, I'd, I'd certainly be open to uh, to giving that a go. Yeah, that's for sure. Brilliant. And at the end of the podcast, we'll be talking about your social media. And if anybody would like to get in touch with Roy and get together on a session or you know a, 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 any musical idea or poetry idea of Roy, uh, feel free to get in touch with myself or Roy, and uh, hopefully you can get that get that rolling. The in the past you've released numerous albums. But nothing in recent years or in recent times. Do you feel uh, that you have plans afoot, given your interest in music again over lockdown, uh, to release new material on on onto the record? Yes, um, I think that I didn't do music for about three years, three four years. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think how long it was that I was engaged just writing, you know, just writing poetry. I couldn't really do this, the two things together, you see. So when I decided that I'd kind of said what I wanted to say, and it sounds arrogant, but it's, it's literally true. I'd, I'd wanted to tell the story of my adoption and, and, you know, who I was, I suppose. And I felt poetry was the best medium for that. And I'd, I'd done that. So I'd... I'd I didn't just want to write poetry for the sake of it, you know. A lot of people just write to write, and I, I, I didn't want to do that. So, at the same time, you know, the urge to do music came up again, uh, as I was saying, and that was at lockdown time. So, I've written on and stockpiled a lot of songs. I've recorded them at home. Some of them might, I think, are releasable as they are. Others might be demos for doing stuff in a studio or, or some sort of collaborative thing. And the ones about my adoption, I've written about 18 songs about the story of my adoption. And they, I think, are going to come out in an album by The Beautiful Music, which is based in Ottawa in in Canada, who I've released stuff with before. I'm not sure of the timescale, but that looks like that's going to be a release. And that will accompany uh, the the book of poetry I wrote called Be My Baby, about my... Uh, adoption, birth, and it touches on dyspraxia uh, issues in them as well. So that, that's kind of my statement, you know. Um, that's as personal as I, I could probably get at this stage. So I kind of realised that's once I've done that, good or bad, I mean, I think some of the poems are, are, are okay. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that they're fantastic or, or that they're terrible. I'm really not a very good judge of poetry generally, let alone my own. But it's there, it's a physical thing, the book, and the songs will go with the book. Or the book will go with the songs. Maybe you can keep working on the poems, refine them a little bit, have them as a PDF you can download, you know, along with the tracks, work something out there. I've done a few videos and things, so it's to go with them as well. So, yeah, it's a kind of, that joins my various interests together. Genealogy, poetry, which is kind of on the retreat, and music. Um, which is in advance. So that's it. Yeah, that's that's my kind of plan. I'd rather do this one thing and give it my best shot than just keep writing bits of poems that, you know, I don't really feel. So uh, I feel these songs. You know, I've written other songs as well. Um, um, so I'm hoping something will, will happen with them too. But to answer your question, Be My Baby will be out on the beautiful music label at some point hopefully in the coming year 
Marvellous. Let's touch back on your poetry then, Roy. So, in 2015, you were asked to write and perform a poem for a celebration of Nina Simone at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow. How did that come about and how did that feel? Well, I knew the guy that was putting together the concert and I'd been known to that crowd of people for doing music. Um, and I think, you know, I'd, I'd start, I kind of, the music was in the back burner, so he knew I was doing poetry now. He just said, well, you know, do you want to take part in this and you may want to write a poem? So I did. I mean, I'm not the biggest Nina Simone fan, truth be told. She doesn't move me the way Aretha Franklin or Mavis Staples, for example, moves me. I kind of admire her work, certainly in, you know, the stuff she did about um, race issues and things. I have a lot of admiration for her as a campaigner and as a musician. But it wasn't like I had a burning desire to write a poem about her. Um, so it was kind of, it was sort of an assignment, you know, um, and that's quite good sometimes. I just had to write a poem about Nina Simone that, you know, had a certain, you know, there would a certain amount of verses, so it wasn't over in a flash, but didn't, but likewise would go over well in front of a live audience, not, not, not bore anybody, and I think I managed that. But it wasn't heartfelt because I wasn't a big fan. Um... It was just something I kind of knocked off, uh, but it was good. It was good reading it in front of the the audience, and I, f- I felt I did okay. I wasn't too mannered in my my reading of it, which is it kind of bugs me about myself and other other poets when you hear them. It's, it's very hard to get a natural voice, you know. You, as I was saying earlier, you, you tend to emphasise certain words, and it just gets a bit silly, <laughs> in my opinion. Sure. So whilst at the University of Strathclyde, you won the Keith Wright Poetry Competition. Can you tell me more about how that came about and the prize itself? What, what is that? What's that, what's that entail? What's that, what does that entail? Uh, that was 1985, so I'm not sure it exists anymore. Um, I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. I don't think, I can't remember something. I might have got £25. I don't know. I can't remember. I should remember that. It was just, uh, I'd, I'd entered, it was the uni- University of Strathclyde poetry competition. Um, and I'd entered it the previous year and I'd got a kind of commendation, but not a prize. So I remember in the refectory, I spent all my time, so I didn't go to many classes, um, asking, I saw the guy that won it the previous year. And I said to him, you know, um, I'm really looking for some tips in, in entering this competition this year. And he said, well, you know, if you want to impress the, these judges, you've got to write in, in form. You know, you've got to write in a particular form. So I looked around for a kind of, you know, because you can write poems with certain lines of lines and the rhyme schemes and all, you know, the, the set forms as well as the kind of poetry that's just free form. So I thought, okay, and ended up writing a couple of sonnets because I, I found out the, the right rhythm and word count for a sonnet. And I, and I wrote one on uh, Jim Morrison of The Doors and Alan Ginsberg, who I mentioned earlier, poet. And uh, so so that was successful, yeah. Again, that was kind of knocked them off, you know. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able at that stage to really delve into my Roy Muller feelings or my Gene Seymour Hoffman, my birth name feelings. 
it was a job of work and it was good to be recognized for it. Um, emotionally, didn't say much, but uh, it, was, it was a nice accolade to have. Uh, that's our stress. Um, I, I'm not privy to the award itself, and obviously you're, no, not, sure, you're not sure if it's, if it's around anymore, but it's a nice uh, accolade to have, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's nice. I've still got the booklet, you know. Um, uh, so, it's, yeah, it's something for the archives. Yeah, one one drive in the back pocket, as I say. So you've written a book of poems about your adoption. Is that now your lot for poetry, or are you going to go back to music? Well, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, title of a bone film, "Never Say Never Again," the one that Sean Connery came back in. Yeah, I would. Doubt I'm going to really get back into it because I don't really like the poetry. It sounds terrible because I I, I like a lot. I've, I've met people that I really like individually, and but it's the people that are kind of ambitious people in the poetry scene I've encountered. I find I'm not really cut out for it. I, I I find it it's not really my thing. Whereas playing music, there's something about it. You're kind of sharing the music. The music's never completely yours, you know, it kind of comes through you in a way that you kind of make a poem, almost like you're using Meccano or something. It's it's like, look what I've made. And I don't feel comfortable with that very much. So really, for that reason, I don't see that I really want to do much in poetry anymore. And that sounds really rubbishy. But the Scottish poetry seems very very pro-independence, very much, on mass it is. And my view of what art is, is, um, I guess, kind of, should be rebelling against the establishment, not retweeting everything Nicola Sturgeon says. Um, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that. I can't imagine artists and writers in England retweeting everything Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage says. Um, and to me, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but uh, Skegsit and Brexit are two sides of the same coin to me, and I don't really want to associate with that. I did briefly in 2014, I ended up signing a petition that said Scotland should be an independent country, Then I got this email and was drunk one night and signed it. I wish I could erase my name from that, but uh, yeah, it means that I'm an interesting, inconsistent artist it changes opinion. But I certainly have changed my opinion on that. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that at all. It does, it's true of people in music as well, but, but music is bigger. To me, music's like the sea. It's all around us in a way that I just don't, I just don't get that connection uh, with the written and spoken word. My feeling probably, but, but that's just how I am. You know, music connects in a way that uh, I, I kidded myself that writing did, but no, it doesn't really. Not for me. Dyspraxia Awareness Week 2020 is in October. What are your aspirations for the week ahead? Well, the main, there's two things. Um, and first is that those of us with the condition feel better about ourselves, feel part of more than just you know, realise that we fit in. We fit in this look. There's many, something I never, ever had an inkling of growing up. 
that there's many of us and that we and I've been talking about you know social media is not all good by any means but the fact that we can link up now not just know that we're out there but like you and I are doing right now we can we can be in contact and we can share we, we, we can empathize in, in a way that we could never have imagined before so I'm hoping that we feel that as a result of things like the Spats Awareness Week that we can feel valid in themselves and accept ourselves better and also this, of course as the clues in the name of the week that, that awareness of, that, of the condition manifests itself, neurotypical people understand and they understand it's not just affecting kids, it doesn't magically go away when you... You have had a varied career history, previously worked as a support worker, telesales and at the DWP, now you are a subtitler for television. How did you get into the latter and surely it must be very demanding for someone with dyspraxia, autism and ADHD? Well, I have had a varied career. You know, I was talking about doing all these jobs where you get extra, a little bit on top of your gyro. I did a lot of agency work, worked in telesales, worked direction inquiries. Um, I remember going to an away day uh, um, for telesales reps. We all got sent literally to Coventry and we got put in this big... Um, Big top, actually, big circus, big top. And um, a reward for uh, achieving sales was um, we were given all these games to do, walking on stilts, trampolines, disco dancing, and uh, it was it was just complete anathema to me with dyspraxia, you know. And there's, there's, there was these reps going around taking Polaroids, because the late 90s were taking Polaroids of people doing all these activities. And at the end of the, the day, this guy dressed up like a ringmaster, a circus barker, and he, he was holding up the, the polaroids and he was going, oh, there's, there's so-and-so on the stilts there. Oh, didn't, they didn't have a great time disco dancing. And then he, he picked up another polaroid and he said, I think we all enjoyed ourselves today apart from Roy, you know, because uh, I'd been scowling when they took the polaroid of me because um, I was having such a bad time. Um, so that was – I was – humiliated but things as they were working for an agency and it was the late 90s I wasn't I thought about complaining with a company but I didn't think that I really had I would get anywhere and and so I didn't and I'd like to think the the world's changed a bit in that 20 years so yeah there was never really found a steady career worked with DWP for years but couldn't get on top of the paperwork um I got into my current job, which is subtitling for television programs, um, because my wife already did the job. So basically, she there was there was a test for it, a practical, and where you had to listen to people speaking on the, the television news and then re-speak what you heard. So she she trained me, so I uh, I was able to get the job because I'd already had a bit of practice at home. Um, you know, she didn't she wasn't in a position where she, she you know, didn't like getting through the back door as she, she pulled strings, but she was able to tell me what skills uh, um, I would be expected to use, and I was able to work on those skills ahead of time. But since getting the job, it's been really hard. You know, you're multitasking. Um, you're either plugging through um, these files of programs which are still to be broadcast, so you, you get the file and you're having to listen to it and then decipher what people are saying. And a lot of the time, it's hard to make out. 
what people are talking about. You listen to people with American accents and kind of cook, best cook, American cooking program, and they're all talking at once. And I'm like, oh, God, a, a, a Australian master chef is, is really hard to make out what people are saying. Um, things like that, you know, the dreadful quiz shows and occasionally really interesting documentaries. Some like David Attenborough is talking really slowly, which is nice. Um, so it can be kind of heaven and hell. You can you can end up um, watching programs because you're working on the subtitles that you wouldn't have not necessarily seen, but you fa- they're fascinating, you know. So it's a, it's, it's op- it opens you up to things you might not have previously come across. But at the same time, you can be slogging through uh, a quiz show or something like that. It's really really taxing for me to work out what's being said and then to get all the equipment working. And then when you're live and you're subtitling the, the news and things like that, you're having to keep all your wits about you, do auditory processing, do stuff on the keyboard, and get this um, voice recognition software to recognise what you're saying and try not to move too far away from the microphone so the signal's maintained. It's hard, you know, and I've struggled, um, but I've stuck it for nine years. So it's kind of this basic package there, struggling, but sort of sticking at it, I suppose. And after years, I, I used to commute when we moved out from Glasgow to Dunbar, which is about 75 miles from Glasgow. Um, we were told we could probably work from home pretty quickly, but it actually took years and years. So I had a, a huge, long um, commute by public transport. Eventually got working from home. And then recently I've been able to get early shift where I start at six o'clock in the morning and finish at two. And as I was saying earlier, I'm a kind of morning person as far as my energy levels and concentration go. So it's much more in line with my uh, my biorhythms, if you like, you know. My, I'm better to do the I'm better at doing the job the earlier in the morning that I start. So it's a kind of, you know, by raising continually raising raising the dyspraxic issue, I've I've been able to um finally get kind of get the job tailored for me. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of a cushy job because before that I was a support worker, you know, and um, I, was out in all, I was out in all weathers, wheelchair, responsibility, all this kind of stuff. And here I'm just sitting in my bum at home. But uh, I think both the coordination and the ADHD, you know, really it's quite challenging because of those things. Um, but working, working in Six to two is, is so much better than working late at night, I can tell you. I bet. Now, that's just fascinating. I um, I admire your uh, perseverance on those careers and the uh, commute to work and stuff like that in the past. So what support throughout your working life have you had since being diagnosed with dyspraxia? Have you often declared it? And if so, do you feel the benefit from that? Yeah, well, I, I think I declared it every job I was in after diagnosis. Um I was working at the DWP at the time, and it depends what supervisor you have, really. Um, the first supervisor I had when I declared it, um, she put battle boards around me, around my desk to screen out distractions, which was good in, in, the, in that it helped me get on with the work, but it kind of signaled me, singled me out as being different. You know, it was, it was, kind of, it was slightly embarrassing, but... It was. I was really glad that she took it seriously. Next supervisor didn't really register with them. It was back to the same old, same old. Then I left there, 
because the whole place just turned into a call center and it was just, I'd already done that. I, I just, I just couldn't hack it anymore. So I became a support worker. At the interview, I, I mentioned my dyspraxia and how I thought it was, uh, there was a strength to it because it would give me empathy with people with disabilities that I was working with and they nodded and all that. And then, you know, there I am expected to do all these things uh, that are not compatible with being dyspraxia. Like, oh, you know, Jimmy needs his shelves built. Here's an IKEA box. Get it done. No, I, 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 I've, I've explained that. I'm, I'm really, don't ask me to do this. No, no, it's, it's no bother. Just do it. You know, with predictable results. So, you know, they paid lip service, but when it came to the crunch, didn't take it seriously. You know, so I, I, I was. It was, you know, I, bookcase never got built by me anyway. Um, bits of dowling got stuck in holes they shouldn't have been in and it was just a complete mess, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it depends. One person may say, yeah, we understand, that's great, we'll, we'll work here, um, we'll make suitable adjustments, change the supervisor, it can all go down the swanee, you know. So, uh, but I think my current job, I've, I've made enough, I've been high profile about it enough. And now, of course, everyone's working from home. Um, so the situation's never going to go back exactly as it was before. I think there will be more working tailored for people. But, you know, I, as I say, it's, it does, I'm aware that when I'm complaining about it, I find it difficult. I, I'm not having to do manual labour. I mean, looking back at my ancestors that I've discovered, a lot of them were, um, you know, it, it just says labourer. You know, everybody's, when you go back to people's families, I think the same for everyone, labourer. Or, you know, one of my, my great-grandfather scraped out boilers in a, a steel mill. I, I probably could have done the physical work, but anything, you know, I don't know if I could have, how good it had been in that environment, you know, and, and uh, I couldn't have done anything that involved using my hands other than just manual lifting, you know. I, I think it would have been all right at that. But anything involving precision... I'd have been awful. And, and and my grandfather on my father's side, he was a sapper in World War One, you know, um, trench building and things like that. There's no way I could have done that. And my first father joined up as a private in the Canadian Army in 1940 and served five years. I I, I couldn't have taken the noise, you know, let alone anything else. I, I'd have been useless as a... As a soldier, and we had a thing in Britain in the fifties called National Service, you know, and that really scares me. Uh, how would have reacted to that? Because you had to do it if you were of a certain age, you know, and you had to join up and be in the army in the UK normally for a couple of years or eighteen months or whatever it was. And I wouldn't have even gone past making my bed up in the morning. I'd have had some sergeant major humiliating me, you know. And I don't know what I'd have done. I, I'd have done anything to get out of that situation. And I wonder how many dyspraxics killed themselves or hurt themselves in some way because they couldn't face that. And they didn't know what was wrong with them, let alone anyone else. You know, and, and any time you read about differences, it tends to be kind of focused. I mean, I'm in a white-collar job, kind of, you know. It, but it all tends to be on that. Nobody, it doesn't seem, people don't look at what it means in a, in a, so much in a factory or a, or in a kind of blue collar 
job, you know, and or in a, in a family trade where a father in the old days, you know, father, grandfather, we'd all do the same trade, and then the son would be expected to, excuse me, nearly always the son would be expected to follow in that line. And what if you couldn't do that because you, you didn't have the coordination with your hands? You know, how did how did you live? You know, it wasn't you couldn't just arrange your shift so that you were working early shifts and you were working from home. That's a luxury that I have. Some of my ancestors had they had those problems. How the heck have they been able to cope? And I think, you know, I think that's an unexplored thing. I think a lot of people were in prison and, and a lot of people dropped out of the game in one way or another because of that then, because there was no support, there was no understanding. There wasn't even a definition of what they had. And I, I do feel quite strongly about that. You know, it's, it's, Spectre didn't just start in the last few years. You know, that's been running through history and how many people have not been able to understand themselves or be understood because of it. I, I, I feel for them all, you know. So you're married with children. How have your own family de- unit dealt with your adulthood neurological differences? Well, I, I'm hard work, I think, to my to my wife and uh, son. Well, not so much to my son, um, because that was more when he was younger and it was difficult for me, as I was saying, in situations with, you know, kids' parties and things and balloons. It was just, it was, I was not able to really take him or pick him up, you know, without a, a lot of stress. Um, day-to-day, that doesn't always look like I'm listening, even when I am, and if I am, you know, and I don't retain information so it can seem like I don't really care, you know, when I'm being told things, it's, I've had kind of OCD episodes, sleep problems, ongoing thing, panic attacks, you know, it's a, it's a really attractive shopping list actually, so I, I think it's difficult, I'm difficult to live with, I know I am, um, and uh I think my son, because he has, as I say, he has a few coordination problems. He's he's doesn't have anything like the range of stuff I do, uh, thankfully. But um, I think we've got a kind of bond on that level, you know. But it must be hard for my. I know it's hard for my wife to to deal with. Um, yeah, it's not not easy. I'm not going to pretend it is. Um, but uh, always looking for ways to to get around it, you know, I'm not resigned to it being a problem, but it can be a problem, yeah, and often is. What coping strategies then, Roy, do you and your family use for your dyspraxia? The main one is, is just uh, doing every shift now, I think, because I'm even if I'm up at six, not the when I started at six, I wake up a lot earlier than that. I mean, this morning I wasn't working, but I woke up at four. I've been awake since four. But I've only got to last till two o'clock, you know, if I'm working. So before I was, uh, so I can always make it through. Before I was working late and, um, you know, I was just, I was absolutely shattered all the time. So my wife supported me in getting my work pattern changed. And uh, that's been a big, big improvement. And 
also I, for the ADHD, I take Vitalin, uh, uh, professional Vitalin, which helps me sort of concentrate and also lifts my mood. It's not, it's not an antidepressant, but it works that way. Oh. Um, so, so that I'm, I think I'm easier to be around. I'm less grumpy. Um, we don't have any coping strategies beyond that, really, that I'm aware of. You know, we just, we just. Uh, yeah, we, we just try and, and um, I try and assure my wife that I'm listening to her. <laughs> but it's, it's difficult, you know, because you're not even always looking at the person you're talking to and you don't always retain information. You know? so I think the relationships are, are hard with dyspraxia because they're not necessarily sending the signals the other person expects to be getting from you. you know? So, uh, yeah, it's gradual kind of understanding. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I understand more how frustrating it is for her. And I think she understands more how frustrating it is for me, you know. And you don't play the blame game and it's, it's so much easier. And I think we've learned to do that over the years, not to, to blame each other. Her for not understanding and me for being the way that I am, I think I think that does get better over time. Brilliant. She sounds like an amazing woman and uh, you've got a lovely little family there. I like, I like that. Um, what help have you had then since being dis- diagnosed with dyspraxia, if any? Reasonable adjustments at work and um, the Ritalin for the ADHD. And that's it, really. Um, nothing nothing for me beyond that. You know, I don't know really what has dyspraxics, what's open to us. You know, when I got diagnosed with the borderline Asperger's, I got sent to autism. I was recommended to visit this place in Edinburgh. Um, and I remember going in the interview, well, the sort of, welcoming session and I uh, was told, you know, now you've found your tribe, you know, these are, you can, you won't do enough to feel different anymore. But actually, I was as different, if not more so, from the, the people I met there than you know, would be from a neurotypical person. Um, and nothing against that organisation or anything like that. It's just, yeah, I've got the noise aversion, but a lot of them didn't and, and, and um, a lot of them communicated in a very, very different way to me. You know, I remember being, I went to a session where we were talking about um, communication and attention and things like that. And uh, I used uh, I used a metaphor at that, in that meeting, you know, um, and nobody understood what I was saying. And it was just like, well, it wasn't flowery, I was just talking, I just comparing one thing to another thing, you know, like you would in what I would call everyday conversation. And it was like tumbleweed moment, you know, bang, what's, I, I just didn't get it. And I thought, hmm, you know, I, I'm not sure this, this help is helping me because although I have, I'm on the spectrum, it doesn't map with their way of communicating. So, yeah, assistance and help is difficult. Finding the the right package, you know, that wasn't the right package for me. Um, so I don't know. How, how about yourself? Have you found that you have had tangible assistance? Um, help since being diagnosed as a child, I would say, was very um, poor. I would say I was never given specific help for dyspraxia in school or college yeah. and in the workplace it's been 
uh, very appalling. Um, I've just been dismissed from my employer on the grounds of capability, even though I've been in that line of work in management retail for seven years and never had a, a disdain on my record, never been punished for anything. And yeah. basically, they just weren't willing to let occupational health or access to work come into the workplace. Um, right. And they, they they chose to basically move the uh, goalposts left, right and centre on a right. daily basis. And um, yeah, I, I, I find that um, I've had no help really. Um, it's been like, even even with dyslexia, ADHD and, and uh, mental health and stuff like that, that doesn't even seem to register on people's uh, radar. I think no. hidden disabilities and mental health is just so, so belittled and um, unrespected. It, it, it basically, for most people, it, it can be detrimental. Yeah, I, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. You know, there's, there's no... There's, there's, the situation that we're in, there's no one-size-fits-all solution um, to it, is there? You know, it's not like we present the same way, we have the same range of, of, of even amongst ourselves, you know, as I, as I found with the... Uh, with the autism group, that I really, and I don't think I was in denial about artistic patterns of my own. I think it just, you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm dyspraxic with certain artistic traits. I, you know, this if this is the age where we have to identify something, and I identify as dyspraxic. I don't identify as such as autistic. And trying to understand me through the lens of autism isn't quite going to work, you know. And that's just within our own community. And then you've got an employer like you're describing there, where they're, they're, they're actually being dodgy, just sounds like they've got an agenda to get rid of you. And they'll, you know, they, won't, they won't let the right process happen to do that. And that's, you know, what, what is access to work there for if it's not to, you know, find the, a way for the, the goalposts moved were such like that they would hide behind the fact that I worked out of hours so they wouldn't get be able to get access to work to come in at that time. Uh, they wouldn't let me like change my shift to like they therefore let access to work see me and then they're gonna argue that there's a gonna argue the fact that it wouldn't be in my actual job because it'd be in a different time shift and it wouldn't make sense. Then they um, said they wouldn't then they did and then, then I was off, off off work due to the stress they put me under. So then they hid behind the fact that I wasn't at work so I couldn't see access to work. So you, you, yeah, catch twenty two, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally. And um, it's definitely catch twenty two, and it's it's just so frustrating. And, and do you see yourself then, Roy, being predominantly more dyspraxic? Not not in terms of the disability impacting you personally, but do you categorise yourself as more dyspraxic than like uh, autistic or ADHD? Do you did you predominantly see yourself? making awareness for dyspraxia because you feel passionately about that most or it's just this way you feel? I guess, actually, I find it really interesting what uh, Olive Gray was saying. I, I really identified with what she was saying in the, on the podcast about sensory issues and ADHD. So I would say my, I'm sort of, they're not in competition, so I can't say 50-50, but it's kind of 50-50 dyspraxia and ADHD. You know, I think this, I think ADHD is like a kind of subset of the dyspraxia for me. So 
if I had to pick one, that would be it. But it comes with a, it comes with that helping of ADHD. Having said that, the thing that's impacted most of my life is this noise aversion, uh, and that's a kind of autistic spectrum thing. So it's complex. But yeah, I had to wear one T-shirt. If I had three T-shirts and one said dyspraxia, one said ADHD, and the other said autism, I would pick up the dyspraxia one. And I'd proudly march down the street wearing that one. I think that's it. But the ADHD is implicit for me, for my dyspraxia, and the noise aversion is the thing that has created the most havoc in my life. I really admire you for um, basically saying that the autism is the most difficult part of your neurological uh, differences. Mm-hmm. But the fact is you're more aware of dyspraxia and the way it's affected you and that you're... You came to sort of um, portray it in a way to, to shine a light on it more than the other two. Or it's not a competition, but it, it's no. the fact that, that they they've got enough going for them as it is. It kind of, in terms of awareness, it kind of needs people like yourself and I. To, you know, I've got I've got pretty much the same conditions you've got. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of needs people like us to shine a light on dyspraxia. Otherwise, it kind of will never get that attention. Yeah, I think there's something kind of sexy about ADHD. You know, the image of it, you know what I mean? And it's a kind of like, it's like a buzzword almost in the media, you know? There's something, there's no stigma about it. It's like quite fashionable. I, you know, and it's, people don't realise how horrible it is, you know what I mean? It's, but it's it's kind of like, it's getting there as a recognisable thing. Autism is definitely a stigma. Um, when the actual truth of it, you know, is, is very kind of nuanced. And dyspraxia is just the, it's the little brother at the back of the, the queue, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it needs more awareness. Some, it's great. I think it's great with the podcast as well, talking about things other than dyspraxia. We're not defined by it. Um, I think it's important as dyspraxia, we talk about the kind of shitty aspects of it. Because if you, if you mention what you've been able to achieve despite it sometimes. Um, it's like, well, it's not really a big deal. You know, so it's that balance, isn't it, between saying, yeah, this is this is really, really impacts on you. Emphasize that you can't get over it, but it's not, but I'm kind of wary about, hey, look at us, fantastic dyspraxic. Kind, you get people like that sometimes. And it's like, it gives you a special empathy. I don't, I don't think dyspraxics are any more or less necessarily um, empathetic than than anyone else. It depends on the, the situation. You know, I, I think I've switched off watching films and things because I found it hard to identify with characters that were really good at doing stuff, you know, um, and, and things. And I can tune out the things that I feel disenfranchised for. But somebody has a disability, I think, generally, I, I think maybe it does give me um, a special empathy. But I, I really don't think we're more special or less special than anyone else. We are different, you know, and we have our strengths and weaknesses as a group, but individually, so different from person to person, you know. So it's, it's uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to portray it as something you can't get over, because I know you can, and one of the great things about be, being in these groups is, is seeing the achievements people have done, you know. And one guy who's, who's uh, I think, a rugby coach, yeah, and he worked out his own strategy about, catching a rugby ball, you know, the ball was always going to be 
a certain distance away from where he thought it was and he bought that I, I thought it was absolutely amazing you know so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you can do but man it's not it's not it's not a good thing to be born with I, it isn't you know but it's not the end of the world and that i think that's is that that's my my message really. it's shit but you can do something about it it's a good one uh every way basically it, it is shit but you know, we have to sort of dust down our shoulders and get on with it and, yeah. uh, and fight, fight it best we can, really. So yeah. what, what help then did you get as an adolescent that you wish you could have had when looking back in hindsight? Sure. Um, so what album did I, did I get? Or did I not get? Sorry. Um, what, what help, sorry, as an adolescent? Well, adolescent. All right. Sorry. sorry. Yeah. So album, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> What help didn't I get that I wish I could have got? Um, in hindsight, yeah. Hindsight. Help from myself. And uh, self-help, self-acceptance. Um, if I could have... And that, yeah, that would have helped to have a... You know, well, that's the main answer, right? The, the practical answer is more time with exams. Um, and, you know, understanding that I would maybe use a, if, if they'd had laptops then and I could have done an essay in the laptop rather than handwriting, that would be the practical answer to that. That's the specific thing. Um, at school and at university, that would have made things a lot more, e- a lot easier for me. Um, some of the subjects I could do okay, but I didn't get good marks because my penmanship and my organisation let me down even though I was okay at, at the actual subject I wasn't so good at the at, at essay writing or, or doing exams you know so anything that could have facilitated me to get the work in I think would have helped but the thing that would have helped me most was me being realising I had dyspraxia and I think I would have had time then to over the years to, to accept myself better Definitely. And what are your hopes then for the future of hidden disabilities and awareness? I think people aren't up to speed with um, hidden disabilities at all. Really, uh, it's it's finding a definition that people can grasp of what it is to have dyspraxia and its related conditions. That that will that that will get into the public domain more, you know. And I th- as I say, I think it's hard for us with those conditions sometimes to really define what what is wrong with us or what makes us different. So it kind of starts there and moves out and just it's not as I say, you, you put dyspraxia into a dyspraxic into a word document and you get the wavy red line under it because it doesn't understand it doesn't know the word. I want dyspraxia to be as well known as dyslexia. And I'm sure you'll find quite a few people would say that. Um, other than that, I don't think our culture is going to change. I think it's still going to get game shows in the telly where it's based on how well you can do certain things that involve coordination, you know. You can't make everything equal opportunity where, you know, we have to recognise that some people, are, you have to programme so people to show how good they're dancers, you know, that, that's good telly. But it does kind of make me feel alienated as a dyspraxia. I think, you know, that's just so outside my wheelhouse, outside my skill set. You know, you feel, 
when I was growing up, there was the generation game and the Krypton factor, and it was all based in hand-eye coordination and short-term memory. It would be nice if somehow that opened up so that different differences could be acknowledged, you know? I don't know how that would happen. Um, but look what's happened with other things, you know? Like, look at Black Lives Matter, look at players taking the knee before every Premier League game, you know? Things can change in a, in a, in a positive way. So there's hope, certainly hope. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what happened before I'm a, an old git, but you know, something will happen, yeah. Um, just hope I'm, I'm around to take advantage of it, you know. Definitely. We had, we had Bob hope and now we've got no hope, but um, let's hope let's hope we can change that, that momentum and uh, all together, I think we're, as a, as a uh, movement, I think we're uh, progressing rather well and lockdown for me has been very enlightening in the fact that I've met so many different people um, like yourself over Zoom and, and such like, and uh, we've all got we've all we've all had enough of, of, of the way we've been treated as spastics and um, time the times are going to change and it, it's it's quite interesting that other movements have obviously had the same different issues about their own challenging issues and they're all you know they're all standing up and saying no enough's enough now like we've got to make a point because if we don't draw the line here then the line will never get drawn. That's just the phrase I was going to use, and it's been a chance to draw the line. It really has, you know, and I know I'm lucky I don't live in a tower block. I live by the sea, and when you've got the sea on your doorstep, you never feel imprisoned, ever. Um, so I've had it easy, but, uh, you know, so I know lockdowns, apart from the health issues, just it's, it's been very isolating for some people. Uh, but, yeah, it's an opportunity for those of us um we maybe feel disenfranchised to, to draw that line and say we're not going to take it really. And I, I think that has happened and will continue to happen. And to say that there's, there's a world before lockdown, there's going to be a world after. And we, and we want a new world for, for hidden disabilities. And I think that's a gift that we've been given. And it's a very mixed gift. It's, but there's a positive that we can take from it. And that is a, a, new, a new mindset and, um, and acceptance. And on that note, I, I want to add one thing about um, dyspraxia and awareness in the movement. I, I think we should all call for should we call for arms and everybody in the community, regardless of previous infighting or disagreements or what who's done what to help and who hasn't done what. And you know, it's been a miserable thirty four years of, of awareness campaigning and whatever. I feel like we should draw the line and you know draw draw down the uh, the bridge and just say, look. Come on in. Let's let's all work together because, like we're doing now, it's quite easy to do this. It's not hard. Um, no one's asking for miracles. It's just simple, simple bits of effort and, and and time to make that awareness better. Where can we find your music online? Uh, RoyMullerBandcamp.com. Brilliant. And you're also on Spotify, aren't you? I believe so. And it's not. That's not. Not something I signed up for myself. I think it just happened because I've had records released by record companies, you know, and they, they, so it just gets that happens, yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's just I think that's under just Roy Muller. So Roy M O L L E R. So that, well, that that that's worth looking at. And where can we find you on social media then, Roy? I've scaled back social media use quite a bit, but um I have a 
an Instagram, which is just pictures that I take. Um, so it's, I, I like just the simplicity of that. For sort of actually being in touch with people, I have um, Facebook just under my name, Roy Muller with a stroke through the O, and uh, I also have a sort of artist page on Facebook as, as well, which covers the writing that I've done as well as the music. So I, I try and keep the social media thing as simple as I can. So it's, it's basically just me as an individual and me as an artist. Okay, thanks, Roy, for your time. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you, Billy. It's, I've, you know, I've really uh, made me think about a lot of things about my life and, and help me just doing this, just chatting to you today has helped me understand myself a bit better. And listening to the podcasts that you've, you've got up already has helped me understand not just other people, but where I fit into it all. So I think it's a very valuable thing that you're doing. And I also think that despite what you might think, it's a very creative thing that you're doing as well. So thanks very much.